Welcome, everyone, to episode 24 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey, on the line with me for what is technically, Scott, our 25th episode of Some Like It, Scott, though we will officially celebrate that mark next time on the podcast. But before we get to that point, what have these past 24 episodes been like for you? Uh, they've been great, I have to say. I want to know, what what is that 25th anniversary? Like, what are you supposed to get? I, like, was I supposed to buy you a gift? I know there's, like, a theme to the 25th anniversary. Is it, like, bronze or something? I, I don't know. Was I supposed to buy you, like, a mock Oscar statue or something? Uh, you know, as long as it's not a Razzie statue, I think I'm okay. But, uh, yeah, you know, if you can come up with a gift idea between now and the next time we record and, and get that to me up here, I would really appreciate okay, it. Okay, great. I think you're good, too. I think Jurassic World has all the Razzies already locked up for this year, so I, I don't even think I could find one if I wanted to. I, so I, I quickly Googled it. The 25th anniversary is known for being the, the silver anniversary, so you're supposed to silver. give silver. Oh. Yeah. Well, there you go. I'll get you a Monopoly token or something like that. that that's, <laughs> that's a pure silver, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely not plastic. I mean, I certainly have would have no use for a Monopoly token because... As you probably remember from our high school days, I hate the game of Monopoly. Oh, yes. I remember all the times we played Monopoly, and you you would get like 30 minutes into it and then probably just, you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. It, it takes way too long. Also, our friends that we played with were pretty obnoxious when playing Monopoly, including people would actually pay you to stay in the game. Like when you ran out of money and were like out... We had at least one friend who would pay us to stay in the game just to make it go on longer. Yeah, I, I remember that. It's uh, I can't even remember ever finishing the game to be honest. I mean, we probably never. I don't think anyone's ever finished the game. Yeah, like, you, you know, there's no one out there who can confirm whether or not anyone has ever finished a game of Monopoly, and that's that. It's just about who gets frustrated the most, and like, like who who gets the, the least frustrated, and like everyone else quits, and so that person's the only one left. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Settlers of Catan person instead. I did play a four hour game of Settlers of Catan over Thanksgiving. It can take a while, but it there's a, there, it always feels like there's something important going on, you know. I can tell there's you all, after after hour three though. It didn't really feel that important yeah. anymore. <laughs> Fair enough. There's always strategizing, though. Like it's not like Monopoly, where you're just moving in a freaking the same freaking square for the entire game. That's fair. That's true. The longest road, the largest army, things like that. It always requires a little bit more nuance. It, although at some point at the end of the game, you're like, "Well, I actually don't have any more road to build, so I can't yeah. do anything else. I'll just buy a developing card." A developing right. card. Well, you this know, has been talking board games. Yeah, there are new two-minute intro section to the podcast every week, talking board games. But no, no, no. So you know, we've we've been doing this for twenty-five episodes. We do well historically. We've done every two weeks, so it's been almost a year. You know, this time last year, even this time last year, this podcast wasn't yet a, a, an incepted idea. I wouldn't say I would probably not until actual Christmas when we did an ep- like the last episode of your radio show. We're like, why don't we just yeah. talk about movies on a podcast? Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been great, and, and I mean, we've been fortunate that most of the movies that we've seen have been pretty good. I mean, obviously, there have been a few exceptions to that, but, uh, you know, even the ones which haven't been good, it's still enjoy- enjoyable to, I guess, razz them a little bit and, and, and share in the badness with uh, with you, my co-host. Yeah, absolutely, and today we have four more movies to discuss, two of which 
will be giving the thorough treatment to, so we'll have an opportunity to, you know, either razz them or, or not razz them together. Then a little later on in the show, we'll be talking about the award darling Green Book before I give briefer reviews of the new animated version of The Grinch, as well as Steve McQueen's thriller Widows. But first, we're diving into the Rocky Balboa franchise, more specifically, the recent follow-up to 2015's Creed, Creed II, directed by Stephen Capel Jr., who replaces Ryan Coogler in the director's chair for this one. Fittingly set three years after the events of Creed, the opening moments of Creed II finds Adonis Creed, played by most underrated actor no more Michael B. Jordan, squaring off against Danny Stuntman Wheeler in a, bout, in a title bout for the WBC World Heavyweight Championship. After overcoming his L.A. rival to claim the belt with Rocky Balboa in his corner, played by Sylvester Stallone, Creed is not given much time to rest on his laurels as ghosts from both his and Rocky's past materialize in the form of Ivan Drago and his son Victor, who challenge Creed for the heavyweight belt. Stallone refuses to support Creed in his decision to accept Drago's challenge, and Creed is forced to step into the ring alone with the hulking Victor. With the remainder of the movie following the struggle that Creed must overcome, both internal and external, to prove to himself that he is a worthy champion and to step out of the shadow of his father, Apollo, thereby engineering a legacy of his own. Scott, did Creed II land its punches on you, or did this movie only deliver glancing blows? Well, if you follow me on social media, then you'll know that I haven't exactly been shy in hiding the ball on this one. Like I am with most movies, I like to save my reviews of most movies for the podcast, uh, but this one I just couldn't uh, couldn't keep it in because I saw it shortly after we did our last episode, so we had a couple weeks to go for the episode, mm-hmm. and I wanted to just immediately get it out there uh, and tell everyone that I think they need to see this movie because I think it is a terrific sequel and a terrific movie in its own right. Uh, and I'll admit that I was skeptical going into it because, I mean, as much as I like, uh, you know, the Rocky movies, I like... I liked Creed. I thought it was a, a really good reboot. Um, I think that the setup for this movie made me think that they had kind of run out of ideas. You know, just going back to that touchstone of Rocky Four with Ivan Drago and saying, "Oh well, you know, what if Drago had a son?" It just seems like kind of a you know a really cliche way to uh, and really shoehorned in way to you know sort of hit that sweet spot that Rocky Four hit because for many people Rocky Four is their favorite of the series after the original movie um, and I think a lot of that has to do with sort of the political climate that the movie came out in and the fact that it you know it, it was not shy about um, you know pitting saying that you know we're not only pitting Rocky against Ivan Drago we're pitting U.S. against Russia, so it came, you know, and it came out, of course, in the in the heart of the Cold War. So I think that had a lot of um, that's a lot of the reason why the movie has really endured more than any of the other Rocky sequels have. Uh, but so it, it seemed like a really shoehorned in way to me to just say, "Oh, we, we want to try to recapture the magic of Rocky Four. But man, they do recapture the magic of Rocky Four. I mean, it did not take long for me to be totally invested and i and i think you know I, I do think that i enjoyed this movie more than the original creed but i also think that stephen Caple jr has a slightly easier job here because he doesn't he's he's taking over a, a franchise that where we already have the characters have already been developed whereas with ryan coogler you know he had to 
tell sort of it, it was sort of like the pilot episode you know he had to paint all of the characters uh, all, all of these new characters to the to the franchise show us why these new characters belong in this you know long beloved franchise uh you know with with characters like rocky and apollo creed and drago who you know everyone knows even if you haven't necessarily seen all of these movies um so i think kugler maybe had a little bit more difficult of a job here but that's that takes that should take nothing away from what stephen cable jr does um with directing this movie because i think that even though it follows a formula as let's i mean let's be honest most sports movies nowadays we pretty much know where they're going to go and there were times in this movie where things went exactly as i expected them but that didn't take anything away from the amount of investment that i had in the movie and the fact that i mean let, let me put it this way i don't i don't want to spoil anything yet but the first big fight that that creed has in this movie um that adonis has uh, i you know i pretty much had a, a very good idea of how i thought this fight was going to go and it ended up going exactly as i expected it to however uh you know during like halfway through the scene you know i looked down and i was like gripping the side of my seat like because I, I was just so uh, so gripped by what was going on in these fights, um, even though you know it, it does follow a tired formula, and I think that you know Stephen Cable Jr. obviously deserves credit. I also think that the actors deserve a lot of credit. Um, obviously, Michael B. Jordan does a terrific job. Um, he's he's really uh, one of the uh, big movie stars of the moment right now, if not the big movie star of the moment. Um, and I think he proves why here with a performance that isn't just a movie star performance, but a great acting performance as well. And I think he's supported by a lot of great uh, supporting performances, whether it's Sylvester Stallone, Tessa Thompson, Dolph Lundgren. Uh, I think that they all add something uh, great to this movie. And yeah, I, I mean, I could not have been more satisfied, to be honest. I mean, with a, I mean, I have a couple of minor minor criticisms, which we'll probably get to, but overall, I walked out of this movie and I said to my brother, who I went to see it with, I was like, they don't even need to make another one of these movies because I don't think they're going to do better than that, and that, that's really how I feel. It was just so, such a satisfying experience. Yeah, no, I agree. The The part that you were talking about in terms of the fight scenes with you gripping the side of your chair, that resonates with me so much. Like, exactly what you say. You know, I'm someone, I, we've talked about this off air, I can't remember if I've mentioned it on air, but I haven't seen any of the Rocky movies before Creed. I, I, I actually hadn't even seen Creed until, you know, a day or two before I saw Creed 2, because I was like, yeah, you know, I don't watch that many sports movies. I know a lot about them, because um, I read up on them, and, and often they're based on true stories for the most part, but... But I, yeah, I watched the first Creed, absolutely loved it, even though I didn't, I mean, I, I expected to like it because it's Michael B. Jordan, he's one of my favorite actors out there, and I love Ryan Coogler, and Sylvester Stallone's a classic, but how much I liked it surprised me, and then walking into Creed 2, exactly what you described, kind of guessing exactly how this plot's going to go, even though I haven't seen Rocky IV, and, and in, spite of, in spite of that, still finding myself, you know, bobbing and weaving with Michael B. Jordan in some of those scenes, and and feeling the blows almost on my face or, or, you know, kind of, you know, reacting to them and, and wincing and, and, you know, feeling the recoil that, that, you know, in real life you'd be feeling if you get hit by one of Victor Drago's punches. But I think that just speaks exactly to what you're saying. The, the to, It speaks volumes to what uh, Capel Jr. has been able to do here, what Michael B. Jordan has done on screen, the way these films are shot with the cinematography. I believe it's done by Kramer Morgenthau. 
I think it's just it's it's a wonderful job, and, and I know that a lot of the reviews for this movie have been, you know, critic reviews wise have been maybe a little bit middling because it doesn't do anything crazy. You know, everything. I mean, you can you could pretty much write the the trajectory of the plot yourself probably, and that has left people a little bit uninspired but you know acknowledging that the performances have been really strong and for me someone who doesn't have that rooted history of the rocky franchise and what it calls back to it ultimately just doesn't matter that much to me that this plot maybe mirrors rocky 4 or or a combination of a couple different rocky movies uh or you know again i'm not super well versed on those but i think that like everything else just it so rises above you know any anything that it might have echoed in the past in my mind like even even as good as those past movies might have been in my opinion, to like use my pun to start that I used when I started this movie, like the punches still land, and in fact, they yeah. maybe they that you feel them even more for it almost because these the acting and the cinematography and and the visuals on the screen are are so much better than they were in this in the you know the eighties when Rocky Four came out, and th- I just really I fell in love with this movie early, and I remember we were texting back and forth after we both had seen it, and I was like, you know, there's a point in this movie where I leaned back in my chair, and I'm like. Yep, this is, this is a good movie. And you said it, for you it was quite early on, even earlier than it was for me. And, and I, I can't praise this movie highly enough. And, and the standout scenes, which we've already kind of talked about here, are, you know, what the, the, the fighting scenes and the hype scenes for me. They, they, they're just standout sequences, both in terms of, you know, how it's edited, how it's, you know, cut in with the music that's playing in the background. Michael B. Jordan working out, Stallone, you know, Stallone supporting him. All the things just come together in these particularly climactic um, and rousing moments in the film. And, and for me, they're some of the best scenes of the year. Yeah, and I think that in terms of you know what you're talking about with not having a strong basis in the Rocky franchise, I mean, I don't think it matters at all. Um, the, on, the only area where I think maybe having seen the earlier Rocky would, you know, necessarily, it, it is like a necessary component is sort of with some of the backstory with Victor Drago, with the Drago family. Mm-hmm. And I, I will say, I think that is one of the weaker points of the movie. I don't think that they develop that enough. Um, I like what they tried I, to do. Like, I, I like what yeah. they tried to, for the lack of a better word, like humanize the villains in this movie. And, and I think that they do that even without this storyline, honestly, like that, that is one thing which I enjoyed about these characters and particularly Dolph Lundgren's performance. I think he comes off as much more of a human being, um, than he did in Rocky Four, but I mean, I, I, and I, I think that's true even outside of you know th- this sort of family backstory that involves what happened in Rocky Four, where uh, Victor Drago's—I mean, I'm sorry, Ivan Drago's wife—basically just walked out on him because he he lost to Rocky. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I mean, for me, the scene that you were talking about that I mentioned, where I, I was really got into the movie was that first scene where they confront each other Stallone and Dolph mm-hmm. Lundgren in the restaurant yeah. uh, in, in Rocky's restaurant I think that this movie it should and this continues throughout the movie they do they strike a perfect balance of like nostalgia and hitting those beats that you want that like if you're a fan of the original franchise you want them to hit in this movie but also telling a new narrative almost in the way that the new star wars movies have i mean i know that, that maybe that's not like the most on the nose comparison but like I, I compare everything to star wars but i think that it's it's a similar idea in the sense that they both have these nostalgia moments but they're but ultimately what they're concerned with is 
writing a new story. And I think that they succeed in doing that um, because the characters, because the new characters are so well drawn. And yes, we love seeing, you know, Rocky and Ivan Drago going at it, at least verbally, like they did in Rocky Four. But ultimately, the the Adonis Creed scenes and, and all of the scenes involving new characters are just as compelling, if not more compelling. And I think that's a huge credit to the director and writer. Absolutely. Uh, I, and I think at this point, it's probably worth just diving right in, talking about you know, the lead actor in this movie and you know also since the soft reboot, as you mentioned, in, in 2015 with Creed, Michael B. Jordan. What did you think of him? I think he does a terrific job as Adonis Creed. I think that... Uh, I, what I what I like about this character and what I like about his performance is that they, he's not perfect. Um, he's not uh, you know this hero that they try to lionize. I mean, we see that he's he gets a little bit cocky throughout this movie, um, which I think is something that you never got from Rocky. So I, th- I think that that's again that's one of the things I like is that it's he's not just. For lack of a better phrase, he's not just a black Rocky. Like, that's not what they're going for. He, he's a completely different character. He has a completely different background from Rocky. And uh, he, he ends up having a different attitude about being the champ than we probably ever saw from Rocky uh, in, in, those, in that original franchise. And I think that Michael B. Jordan really gives this, movie, gives this performance a lot of emotional depth because his character has to go through a lot in this movie. And, I mean, maybe this is where I'll, we'll, we'll kind of get into a, a few spoilers. Um, I think that's fine. But, I don't know how many, how many spoilers there are in this movie. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. that's probably fair. But, you know, when, after this first fight with Victor Drago, when, you know, he's been severely beat up, and, you know, we have to wonder, is he ever going to get back in the ring? Um, I think that he has some really difficult scenes uh, where, mm-hmm. you know, he's really grappling with you know not only is he going to be able to fight again but is he going to be able to fight again given what has happened now in his own personal life with the fact that he's engaged to bianca his girlfriend played by tessa thompson Mm -hmm. and they have a child um like how you know that obviously has impacted him and you know it has impacted his decision or at least has made it more difficult for him to decide you know does he have to get back in there in the ring again? But so we have that side of it, but we also have, of course, you know, his own family, like his, his blood family, like the background that comes from that and his mother who, you know, lost Apollo Creed, lost her husband because of Ivan Drago. And, you know, just simply the fact that he still uh, bears the Creed name uh, that his father, you know, bore until he was killed by Ivan Drago in the ring. Um, and so I think he does a really good job of uh, showing us that how much this character is affected by that sort of tension um, at, you know, at this point in the movie when he's deciding if he needs to fight Victor Drago again. So I think that he's, he, he gives this, he, he could have just coasted on his charisma because he has so much natural charisma, but I think he, has, he's, he seems determined to uh, make this character more than just a caricature, and I think that his performance very clearly reflects that. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, watching this movie and, and hearing you talk about this, it, it honestly draws my thoughts back towards our last like last podcast we did when we talked about Fantastic Beasts and how what you thought that this Fantastic Beasts spinoff franchise was missing from the Harry Potter franchise was the human element. And, you know, in 
mm-hmm. Creed 2 here, and, and I think this is also true for Creed 1, but since we're talking about Creed 2, you get the human element to, like, in, in the forefront of the movie, right? Like, of course, your set-piece moments are going to be fighting for that, you know, fighting in, in the ring, but but the data or the moment to moment of the of the movie is this human element, and they really double click on that in this movie, like exactly the way you've described. You know, first he had to have you know, had that internal struggle to choose whether or not to even accept the Drago's challenge, and then you know after he does lose that first fight, he has to grapple again with himself about you know one is he physically able to get back in the ring, two. What is he going to do with his family, right? Because, like, we're kind of downplaying it here, but one of the things that strikes me as remarkable about this performance by Michael B. Jordan is the range that you get in the movie of someone who is clearly fighting so many different internal demons post that first fight with Drago. And you see that in the way that he treats his family. You know, not just not just Rocky, not just his mother. He, the way he treats Bianca, the way he treats, you know, his, his child, his daughter, whose name in the, in the movie is escaping me. But the the point of it is, is that I find it, it, it was really difficult to watch some of those scenes, you know, where he's recovering just after he gets out of the hospital, but now he also has this baby, or he's about to have this baby, and he's not treating Bianca well, and you're like, you know, he's dealing with a lot. Is, is he ready to have this family? It really makes you ask that question, and, and the fact that I feel so confident by the end of the movie answering that question, which direction, is totally, in my opinion, down to Jordan's performance, and it's... Honestly, to me, he's not going to get an Oscar nomination for this performance, but I think it's one of the better performances this year. I agree. I mean, I I, I think maybe he, in a just world, he would at least be in consideration, but I haven't really even heard anyone talking about him in consideration. But I think that you're, you're right to say that the emotional element is what we take away. I mean, ultimately, when I walked out of the theater, what hit me the hardest was not the last fight scene, although it is terrific, but the scenes which come after that fight scene, which really uh, draw on the uh, emotion, the, the human story that, that they have been telling, not just with Adonis Creed, but also with Rocky himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the way that they pay off on those, uh, you know, more emotional storylines is the mo- probably the most satisfying part of the movie. And and like I said, the thing which I took away from the theater. Yeah, it's it's... It, it's just great. I really love this performance. I know and anyone who regularly listens to this podcast knows how big of a Michael B. Jordan fan, so I'll, I'll raise my hand and say I'm biased here. Um, but I, I love this performance. And, you know, it, if you hearken back to the first movie here as we kind of change directions and switch topics, you know, Sylvester Stallone nominated for Best Supporting Actor for his role as, as Rocky in, in the first Creed, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know... Almost you, won. Almost won. And, and do you think that he's as good in this movie as the first one i mean yes i I, like i don't i don't necessarily think that rocky that uh sylvester stallone's performances are any better or worse in any of these movies like i think and i but i but i think that's what i like about it is that there's just an ease to his performance there's such a like effortless quality to this performance because Mm -hmm. you know he's been playing this same character for 42 years now uh so and he's so good at it it's like it's him he is synonymous with this character yeah and you know what he may lack in like technical acting ability (laughs) i think he he more than makes up for and just the fact that he has established this character you know over so many years and he knows how to tug on our heartstrings with this character he he knows how to evoke 
what we have loved about Rocky Balboa for so long, uh, which is, you know, his toughness in the ring, but also his, you know, sentimental heart outside of it. Um, and I think that he, he, he does a great job again here. Um, and I, I think that, like Michael B. Jordan's performance, there's um, emotional layers to it. Even, you know, like I said, even even if, even if he may not be the most technically skilled actor, um, you know, the fact that we have known and cared about this character for so long, you know, makes us connect with certain, you know, see, certain developments that happen with Rocky's own backstory, whether it's, you know, him trying to reconnect with his son or whether, you know, it's him being made the godfather to Adonis's child or whether it's it's him with all of these past demons coming back with in the form of Victor Drago in the form of sort of Apollo Creed's ghost uh coming back in, in a way um, and, and, you know, harkening back to Rocky Four when Rocky didn't stop the fight between Apollo and, and Ivan Drago. And that's really like the, the demon which he has carried with him for so long. And I think you see that uh, on Sylvester Stallone's face, uh, you know, and in, in his performance, um, mm-hmm. you, you really see what, you know, the emotional weight that is on him uh from this incident that happened so long ago, but that he still feels the repercussions of. And that's, you know, that's obviously why ultimately why he doesn't go with Adonis in the first fight and, and, and won't train Adonis because he can't bear to bring those painful memories back. But, you know, as the, as the movie goes on, um, I think he, he does a nice job of portraying his change of heart and why he decides ultimately he needs to do this for himself uh, not just for Adonis, uh, in order to to put those demons behind him. Yeah, no, I like the arc that Michael B. Jordan's character Adonis Creed takes in this movie. Stallone's is more of a muted one. I think that there's there's less. I mean, he's a supporting role, right? This movie is about Adonis Creed, not Rocky Balboa, in some ways. But at the same time, you still get you still do get a subplot. You still get an arc here, and it's satisfying. Exactly like what you said. All those you know cuts. Those cutaway moments where you see Rocky, even when he's not training um, Creed, when he, you know when he's in his restaurant, if he's watch, for example, watching the first fight, you yeah, know, I when he, that was great. The conversations with, uh, not conversations, just one conversation with Ivan Drago. Those moments were even separate from the Creed being on screen. They're still really good. In fact, sometimes you know there are those moments. Sometimes are even better than the ones with Michael B. Jordan in them. I think they they really they really compete with each other in terms of how good the scenes are and and that just makes the movie better everything you said about this character everything you said about stallone's performance as this character is so spot on for me i I think that to add one note to what you were saying and i think it goes along quite nicely with what you were saying it's just in the way he speaks the way you know his vocal intonations are just they they just feel so right for the character and and that's because this character is sylvester stallone this character is rocky you know I, i think that it's he's so good in it and it's hard for me to pick which one of these two actors puts in a better performance but i think it might have been sylvester stallone in the first one and i think maybe michael b jordan edges it in this one just because i think michael b jordan is asked to do a lot more he's asked to do something completely different not only he asked to do something completely different than what he did in the first creed he's asked to do a lot more over the course of the movie and i think for me it makes michael b jordan's performance stand out um ahead of everyone else but sylvester stallone is still very noteworthy to me 
right? Neither way, I think you would agree that they complement each other very nicely in oh, their scenes together. Absolutely. I think that these characters, you know, whoever is, whoever is responsible, whether it's Ryan Coogler or whether it's Sylvester Stallone even, because I know he has such a strong role in this franchise of, you know, whoever built these characters um, from the ground up. And, of course, Michael B. Jordan puts his own flavor on it and, and makes them mix well. The, two, the, chemi- the two's chemistry on screen is, is spectacular. But, you know, full, you know full, full honors and full credit to whoever was able to architect that. Absolutely. Awesome. So, I mean, we've talked so much about here the the, the main two people in this film, and, and then they've other people have come up. You've mentioned Dolph Lundgren, you've mentioned Tessa Thompson, and there are a handful of other people, including, uh, you know, re- is it real-life boxer Florian Montanu, who plays Victor Drago? I don't know if he's a real-life boxer, but I feel like he, I think yeah, he is. Yeah, I think it probably is, because, I mean, the first movie, we had Tony Bellew, who actually did play the... I, I don't remember the character's name, but the the pretty pretty Ricky fought. Conley. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and Tony Bellew obviously is is a is a legit boxer, or at least he was until he retired recently. Yeah, um, but then so, also Felicia Rashad and Andre Ward, as well as Russell Hornsby, who plays Buddy Marcel, the promoter yeah. for the for for Drago for Victor Drago. Did any of these performances stand out? Anyone you want to call out here? Obviously, some of them are, are more uh, front and center than others here, but any stick out to you? I mean, well, I really like. I think Russell Hornsby is one of those like character actors who pops up in a lot of movies, and yeah. uh, I always enjoy what he is able to do, even though he usually doesn't have a very huge role. One, I mean, one movie that which comes to mind was I thought he did a really nice job at Fences a couple of years ago mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. with Denzel Washington. Uh, but so I, I think that he he's always able to add something, even in a small role. I think Felicia Rashad does a nice job as well. Um, Again, though, I think it's it is kind of a it's a pretty small role, and yeah. maybe maybe didn't quite have the emotional uh, heft to it that I wanted. Like in the in the scenes where they're talking about you know the fact that Adonis is going to fight Victor Drago's son, and ob- obviously there's a lot that comes swirling back for for Adonis's mother as well. Um, you know, with this fight coming back, but I don't know that I got like quite the emotional payoff in that those scenes <laughs> that i wanted um so, that's such I, an interesting still... note yeah I, I i i those scenes stuck out to me in the movie and i agree that the emotional payoff's not there but one thing that i really liked about this performance and, and i think this also can be chalked up to the writing is that in those moments it's it would be so easy i think to tell her to be like you know don't don't do it please don't do it and kind of echo everything else that that has been said to him and I actually really liked that she was the like her her role in that whole arc of am I going to fight Victor Drago at all for the first time is look I'm not going to give you permission you're a grown man you clearly don't have anyone else's permission which is why you came here and I yeah. actually, I actually really liked that line I agree that it wasn't necessarily emotionally satisfying but it just it felt good though if that makes sense yeah I agree and I I like that element of it i think they they do that a little bit later on in the movie like that's one of the things that i like later on in the movie like Mm -hmm. when after adonis um you know gets injured and he's coming back and of course we know he's gonna fight victor drago again like everybody knows Mm -hmm. Uh, but i was just sitting there and i was waiting in the build-up to like him deciding to fight i was just waiting for all of these scenes of people saying oh you can't do this again yeah like you know you're you got a family to think about you know all these like kind of cliche scenes that i was expecting yeah. and they didn't really come the one scene which we do get is Tessa Thompson, his scene with, yeah. yeah his scene with bianca right where he, she basically says kind of what you were just 
alluding to with uh, what what his mother says, which is that I'm not going to be the one you know who tells you no. I'm not going to be the one who stops you from doing this fight. Um, and so I really liked that they they stepped away from the cliche in, in that particular moment because so much of the movie is formula. I think I, I enjoyed the fact that. Uh, they they went in a, a different direction there, and I did. I mean, I, it didn't hurt. Certainly didn't hurt the movie in, in any way. But I think maybe just a little earlier on, I would have liked to seen a little more from uh, Felicia Rashad. But I still think she does a nice job. Yeah, no, I, I think to to note maybe focus a little bit more on Tessa Thompson's performance because she's probably like the, the third the third most prevalent character in the movie. Yeah. I'd say, and, unless you argue that. You know, Ivan Drago might might be that person, yeah. but you know Tessa Thompson on, on on the good team, so to speak. I think that she, it's it's weird. Her performance and her role is is one of the it's it's a little bit stereotypical. In in the first movie, I thought she was asked to do a little bit more because she had her own music career. You know, of course, she was supporting um, Adonis after they got together, but there was always some wild card element to her character where you didn't really know what to expect from her. This movie, it's a little bit more predictable. I think you know what she's going to say. You know, they're engaged, they're getting married, they have a child. It's all a little bit more predictable in that sense. But I still, I still like her. Like she's charismatic. Her, her relationship with Michael B. Jordan on screen. You know how how they interact with each other. Their chemistry is still really strong. I think. And and the scene that you were talking about um, is is one that I really like in the movie. Is where she's like, look, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to be the one to tell you to tell you no that you can't go fight him a second time, and you know, granted that movie that scene does stick out to me not necessarily because of Tessa Thompson's performance, but because of that was the moment in the movie where you know I saw in you can see it in the face of Michael B. Jordan, you know the the change that his character has gone through in the movie, and and she was a part of that, right? You know, but at that being said, she's not asked to do that much in this movie, I don't think. Yeah, I agree. She is relegated to the background a little bit, but I think that she certainly gets by on first of all just her natural charisma as an actress mm-hmm. um and also you know her, her great chemistry with michael b jordan's that you know she has established from the first movie on um i think that even though she doesn't get uh you know a lot of big scenes in this movie mm-hmm. and maybe doesn't have a lot of big decisions or anything to make um i still think she is a very crucial element to why this movie succeeds and i think when oh, she absolutely. does get when she does get the big scenes, like the one that we were just talking about, uh, I think she absolutely delivers. Agree. I'm looking forward to hearing her voice role in Lady and the Tramp next year. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's in that. She's also, um, I guess I shouldn't crap on it too hard. She is, I mean, she is a Valkyrie in Thor Ragnarok, so I, I, I'm kind of assuming that she's going to come up in the new Avengers movie, so we'll see. Maybe so. I'm, I'm expecting everyone to come up in the new Avengers movie. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, if they've introduced a character that's still alive at this point, or like hasn't been shown to be dead, like <laughs> yeah. are they not going to show up in Avengers? She's form? one of the new Avengers now. Yeah, I mean, could be. She's cool. She she does a good job with Thor Ragnarok. I don't know if yeah. you, did you ever see that one? I still haven't seen it now. All right, well, we'll it's, on, it's on Netflix, so I want to watch it. Oh, that's right, it is. Well, let's stay focused on on Creed two. Sorry for getting us on that tangent for just a moment. That's my fault. But um, any other supporting cast, or would you like to move on to the plot? I mean, we kind of already talked about, but I think Dolph Lundgren mm-hmm. does a good job in making. Uh, Ivan Drago more than just you know this the evil Russian hitman like I think there's there's mm-hmm. more emotional depth to this character as well I mean you know not to the extent that uh, you know I wanted Victor Drago to win or anything but like I think you know I I, I understood what was on the line for uh, yeah 
for Ivan Drago in this fight. Like there, there were competing interests in the fight. Uh, and I, I understood where both parties stood when we finally get to the final fight. And Mm -hmm. I mean, you see like for, for Ivan Drago, you really get the sense that like this fight that he had with Rocky, where he was beaten, really sort of changed the course of his life. And well, and, he does and say really, that it changed his life. It's a little uh, on the well, nose, but I don't. I, yeah. Well, there you go. But uh, I mean, in, in terms of you know, obviously, he, it caused his wife to leave him, and it was just sort of an embarrassment for him and for even for Russia because you know he was he was representing Russia. The fight was in Russia, mm-hmm. um, and so I think he does a nice job of making us empathize with the character. Uh, you know, more than we, we did in Rocky Four, even if ultimately it doesn't cause us to root for Victor Drago or anything crazy like that. Yeah. So I was actually talking with, so Jay Habib, friend of the, friend of the pod, did, did the Marvel um, podcast with him. He, we were talking about this movie because he's a big uh, Creed, Creed fan. We were talking about it after he saw it. And he said to me, and I, and I want to pose this question to you, is that, is this movie worse because they try to humanize Drago? He said that what he wanted out of the movie was not, uh, like m- me feeling bad for you know the the dragos who are, who are you know he wanted someone someone to hate and he wanted someone to you know get in get in the ring with and just beat the crap out of basically what what did you think of that I, I didn't necessarily agree with that but I want to get your thoughts well I think that's interesting and I think that someone who loves Rocky Four would probably agree with that just because you know there's not a lot of layers to Rocky Four it really is just good versus evil U S versus Russia and that's why so many people loved it I think. So I don't think, with, with people who have those memories of Rocky Four, I don't think they want to be like, all of a sudden be told, oh, actually you're supposed to care about like you know the evil Russian, uh, mm-hmm. which you know maybe has some significance in today's political climate too. But mm-hmm. uh, but so I think that that's a, that's a, that might be a perspective that someone takes from uh, you know. Rocky for someone who wants sort of the just straightforward good versus evil, um, you know, clash, which many of the, the early Rocky movies had. Um, but I think that the fact that they don't go down that direction shows that they're, they're kind of trying to write a new narrative um, with this Creed series and not just focus on, you know, the visceral gut punch, but also in telling a good story. And so it didn't bother me. Uh, but I but I understand that perspective, and I think that other others will have that perspective on. Yeah, no, it was just interesting to me because obviously I don't have the memories of Rocky Four, but I think as you well put, it, it, it could have a, that effect on certain people. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So I mean, we've talked some about the plot already, and I think it's worth diving into. Uh, kind of the key, one of the key questions that came up to me, like obviously it, it echoes a lot of what of what happens in Rocky Four and, and the events surrounding what take place in that movie. But to me, my question is, you do get this other element. You get this subplot of Creed and, you know, the family dynamic that he has to go through. You know, he has his fiance, you know, slash wife, when Bianca, and obviously this kid on the way, and eventually kid being born in this movie. Do you think that this movie tries to do too much? Because you also have the subplot with the Dragos, which you mentioned was one of the weaker parts of the movie. Do you think this movie takes on too many different plot arcs? Uh... And did you feel like it, maybe it felt like it needed to because it was echoing so much of happened with Rocky Four? Where, where are you at on the plot in this? I don't, I don't think so, except in the sense that I talked about with, with the, the Drago backstory, I think maybe could have used a little more fleshing out. But I think that all, everything that they set up, like 
is number one the natural way for this franchise to to move forward mm-hmm. uh you know with creed with adonis establishing a family of his own but it also dovetails nicely with what's going on with rocky and what's going on at the end of the movie yep when you know we have all of these competing family interests with rocky getting in touch with his own son just as creed is you know having a child of his own not a son obviously and also, you have the other, the other, you know, side of it of Creed going to Adonis, going to his father's grave, and kind of saying, you know, I finally, I finally avenged you, um, like, you know, I, I finally avenged your death. Uh, so I think that the idea of another generation, uh, you know, being created here dovetails nicely with all of the the family dynamics that are going on with both Adonis. And Rocky, so I, I don't think they they tried to do too much because I think everything has a payoff, and you know in a sequel you want the characters to move forward. You don't want stasis, no matter how good the first movie was. Mm-hmm. So I think that you know again it's it's a natural place for the story to go, uh, and I and I think they do a nice job with it. You know again this is where I think the actors add a lot. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I do think that it, it tries to overemphasize the impact that it has on you know, the Dragos. That's not to say I don't want them to humanize them, but to your point, which you've already brought up several times, I think that you know you can feel the weight of what it means to the Dragos, particularly Ivan, without having these really weird and... Con- I shouldn't say they're contrived, but these scenes that cut away to you know this big banquet in Russia after Victor wins the first fight. And, you know, this... You know his his ex wife, you know uh, Victor's mother, showing up in several of the scenes, and you know at first I didn't even realize it was his mother. It took me a few moments, even after the first scene where you see her, that it actually was his mother. It wasn't instantly recognizable to me, but but you didn't need that to feel the way. You didn't need the the shots and you know the the final the, that second fight between them of Ivan looking over his shoulder to towards his his wife or his ex wife to know the impact of what it has for them. So in that sense, maybe it does stretch itself too thin. But the but the plot arc of them needing to redeem themselves is still there. They just maybe do too much with that. And I think that is maybe even being a little bit nitpicky because the plot arcs that you do get in this movie, you've talked about them, we've talked about them already, uh, with you know Michael B. Jordan's family and with Sylvester Stallone's family. I mean, they they, they rock. I think I think they're, they're great. They do it really well. Yeah, I mean, like I said last time with, with Can You Ever Forgive Me, I really love stories that focus on the idea of legacy and, and how how does your you know your name and your reputation and what you've done how does it carry on mm-hmm. into future generations and i mean this movie hits those themes you know directly on the nose absolutely and and i think this of course the first movie also wrestles with that because the whole i mean the whole premise is like okay i want to be a boxer but i don't want to go into the creed name because i i don't want to i don't want to have my father winning me any fights basically and this movie, I think, even more takes that on because you have these scenes with Rocky being like, "Look, you know, I'm the uh, talking to his wife at her at her grave and Polly's grave," and you have these kind of monologues of him being like, "You know, maybe I'm done. This is it," sort of thing. But you know, he finally bites the bullet and you know, not necessarily be, is the bigger man, but kind of swallows his pride a little bit and reaches out to his son, and that's a really touching. Um, emotionally satisfying into that arc at the end of the movie and and you know almost everything about michael b jordan's family arc is is pretty satisfying too by the end and i I particularly loved speaking of that family arc i I particularly loved the scene where he takes his daughter to the gym and kind of works out for the first time again with her i I thought that was a really touching and beautiful scene 
Yeah, I agree. And and just like the the emotional rawness that he shows of you know trying to get back mm-hmm. in the ring, even though he still obviously feels physical pain, it is great for Michael B. Jordan in that scene. I also think on the Rocky family note. I think there's got to be, they're obviously setting up something for Creed 3 because why else would Milo Ventimiglia be appearing in like five seconds of this movie unless he's actually, you know, he's booked for like the next movie or something. So I think maybe maybe we uh, we got a little foreshadowing there of what's to come in Creed 3. Although, like I said, personally, I would be okay with them ending it with Creed 2 just because I think it does have a satisfying conclusion if they didn't want to take the story any further. You know, I think that... So, I guess two things. First, to kind of touch on the one more aspect of the plot before we talk about the future of this franchise, which is kind of the thing I want to wrap up with. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a little bit disappointed, definitely not the right word, but I was a little bit surprised or nonplussed that they really didn't follow up at all with, like, the whole cancer arc of the first movie. Like, I thought for sure that, like, some element of this movie would be, like, rock, like even more so leaning hard into Rocky's mortality. Well, yeah. And, I, and I, just to, to cut in, like I'll tell you, like my prediction going into this movie was that Rocky was going to die. Yeah, I mean that, that's what I would have guessed, and I would have yeah. I would have thought that like he would have died in between the first and the second fight, and then like you know Adonis does it for both Rocky and for himself and for Apollo, and and kind of went, and that's like the the ultimate like emotional resonance of that final fight. But obviously that's not what happens. Um, but do you, like, and, and this segues into my my wrap-up question that i'd like before we talk about the favorite scene in the score and the score for the movie i you know what is the future of this franchise do we think that stallone is done in a major role right like maybe he'll have a cameo of course he's going to be involved with another movie but you know is is his time as rocky sunsetting or do you think that the next movie is going to feature him in another like major supporting role here i think that because there's no way because there's no way there isn't going to be a Creed three, right? Like there's well, no, yes, I mean, yeah. I, that, and that's my thing. I think he'll give it one more go, just because, a, you know, three movies has become kind of the norm now for for you know for a series, and so maybe and 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 maybe you know the fact that he's reconnected with his son now is going to you know have some significance in the third movie. Like I like I said, I think it will just simply because of the fact that we have you know a, a fairly well known actor who just shows up for. Not probably not even one minute of this movie that he's in. Um, it, it it seems to me like there has to be something going forward with that character. So maybe what we're going to see is sort of Rocky passing his legacy on to his son in the next movie. Um, but I, I do think that that Stallone will give it one more go, um, just because there is going to be another movie, and it's hard to imagine that Rocky not playing a part in this movie. You know, unless he had been killed off in this movie, which obviously he wasn't. It's just, it's hard to imagine them making the conclusion of this franchise, of of this Creed series, which Rocky has been such an important part of, without him. Yeah, I mean, for me, I just feel like I totally agree with you in that. Like, th- this is this feels like this should be where Rocky's story ends, and, and you know, maybe the next movie is maybe it does have you know Milo Ventimiglia's uh, Rocky Junior or Robert Balboa or whatever. Um, in it and, you know, has some relationship or develop some relationship with Michael B. Jordan's Adonis. But, like, oh, I just, I feel like it's so satisfying, this ending for Rocky. I'm not saying they can't also produce a really satisfying ending in another movie with with Stallone's character, but I, I fear that it won't top the emotional resonance of this particular ending. 
Right, and I, and, I mean, I, I obviously agree. That was basically mm-hmm. what I what I said to my brother when we when we were leaving the movie. Perfect. Well, I think unless there's any other topics you want to hit, I think we're I think we're ready for a wrap up here. Let's do it. All right. What's your favorite scene from Creed Two? Well, there's so many, and I feel like we've talked about uh, you know a, a lot of the great ones, but I'll, I'll highlight one moment maybe which is a bit more comedic in the in the movie. Okay. Um, which is where the Bianca and Adonis have gone to, uh, you know, the mother's house, gone to Adonis's mother's house. I can't Felicia think of Rashad. what her name is, but, um, you know, Felicia Rashad. Oh, Ma- I think it's ha- Marianne. Marianne, okay. They're having dinner, and, you know, basically the whole dinner is kind of set up under oh, the, yeah, the guise of, yeah. of Bianca wanting Adonis to tell his mother that they are engaged now. Um, and... He, you know, he finally works up the courage to do it and says something like, you know, mom, you know, there's something I need to tell you. And she's like, oh, I already know. And they're like, oh, you, like you already know I'm engaged or whatever. Uh, he doesn't say that, but I mean, that's, you know, what they're mm-hmm. what they're portraying. And then she says she's pregnant. Right. And they're both like they both start laughing because, you know, they think that, you know, Felicia Rashad, Marianne has is completely off base with this. Mm-hmm. And. They're like, no, she's not pregnant, whatever. And Felicia Rashad's kind of just like, oh, believe me, I can tell. And then it just immediately cuts to them, like, in the bathroom with Bianca taking the pregnancy test. And sure enough, she does turn out to be pregnant. I thought that was just kind of an amusing moment. Um, and, and, you know, an otherwise pretty intense movie. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That, that's a great scene. I think for me, we haven't referenced the scene specifically, except maybe, you know, at the very, very beginning. Uh, but the hype scene in this movie where he's training for the second fight with Rocky in the desert, oh man, that, that scene gets you ready to like jump up out of your seat and you know run a marathon. It, it's just the so... training montages are always great in Rocky movies. Yeah, it's really good. The music, the cinematography, all the stuff they have Michael B. Jordan doing. I mean, gosh, how jacked did he have to get? Because like, I mean, he was ripped yeah. in, in Black Panther for, a kill, for being Killmonger, but not this ripped. He is so ripped yeah. in this movie. And... and- in that scene too, my brother actually pointed this out to me. So shout out Rob because he he uh, has seen the Rocky Four I think more times than I have. But he you know he pointed out that this was a nice callback to the original movie when Rocky actually goes out into the like Russian winter basically and trains. So we have kind of the opposite extreme here with uh, with Adonis going into the desert to train. Uh, so uh, you know again another nice kind of subtle nod to the to Rocky Four. Yeah, absolutely, and you know wonderful scene. That one, that, that's probably my, my pick for favorite, especially of the ones that we haven't, haven't had the chance to talk about yet. But all right, let's t- it's time to give this one a score. What are you going to give Creed 2? I got to tell you, I think as far as blockbuster movies that we have seen this year, mm-hmm. I cannot think of a more satisfying one uh, that I've seen this year, even Mission Impossible. So I'm going with a Ooh. 9.5. Even better than Mission Impossible Fallout, man. Even better than Mission Impossible Ooh. for me. You know, I have to think, I saw that several times in theaters, and I want to go see Creed 2 again in theaters, to be honest. It's just yeah. so satisfying. Um, I want to go see it in Dolby. There's a theater near me that, that has the Dolby full experience, uh, yeah. and obviously with AMC... The sound would be awesome. The, obviously with the AMC Movie Pass, you know, it's all it's all the same to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I want to go see it, because I, I wasn't able to see it in Dolby when I saw it uh, last weekend, before we recorded the podcast, obviously. Uh, but I want to go see it again in that format, because I think it would be so sick. But anyway, yeah. yeah, I agree. Mission Impossible Fallout, great movie from earlier this year. Great summer blockbuster. This movie, ooh, is it better than Mission? I didn't even thought about this. Is it better than Mission Impossible Fallout? I don't know. This movie's great. Nine point three for me. Yeah, they're very different types of movies, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Scott. Well, 
I think you said it well, but that should just about do it for our discussion of Creed 2. We've both seen a lot of movies this year. We've seen a lot of blockbusters. Some of them have been duds. Jurassic, Jurassic World, one of them. But this one, the opposite end of the spectrum, easily. This is certainly one of my... Uh, it, it, I guess the way I think of it, like this is not only one of the, my favorite movies of, of 2018 so far, but of the movies that I've seen, this is one of those that I'm like, all right, I'm going to go buy this movie when it comes out. I'll, go, I'll add it to my digital collection. It's so rewatchable. The scenes are great. I don't think they'll lose their impact Impact after multiple viewings. Both Jordan and Stallone mastering their roles here, and I, and I can't recommend this movie highly enough. All right, let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing one of the movies that is set to be a serious contender in the upcoming awards season, Green Book. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Our second movie that we're giving the thorough treatment to today is a movie that has admittedly taken me a bit by surprise, and that is Green Book. This, based on a true story comedy drama directed by Peter Farrelly, Farrelly, I'm not 100% sure about that. Farrelly. Farrelly is his solo directorial debut, and it stars a slightly older Aragorn son of Arathorn, Viggo Mortensen, and Mahershala Ali as a lower middle class Italian-American New Yorker, Tony... Tony Lip Vallelonga, and an African-American world-class pianist, Dr. Don Shirley, respectively. The paths of these two men cross when Dr. Shirley needs a driver for his upcoming tour, performing across the Midwest and the Deep South, and Tony is in need of a short-term work after his nightclub temporarily closes for repairs. The two men cannot be more different, as the flippant, often vulgar personality of Tony clashes with the sophisticated, highbrow, reserved personality of Dr. Shirley. However, as the tour gets underway with hundreds, if not thousands, of miles of road ahead of them, and with conflicts sure to arise at the venues Dr. Shirley will play, the two are forced to grapple with each other, and what comes of that is what unfolds on screen. Scott, before we dive deep on these two main actors, I'd love to start with your general impressions of this film. What effect did it have on you, and did you like it? So I definitely had my cynical movie critic hat on when I was going into this one, because the the trailers weren't super encouraging to me, and having read some of the reviews uh, of of people who were more critical of this movie, and, and, you know, they're... Even though it is, you know, an Oscar contender, uh, like a strong Oscar contender, it just won the best film of the year from the National Board of Review. There have certainly been a number of critics who have um, sort of criti- who have been pretty critical of it, just to put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, most of their reviews that I was reading kind of were reflecting what I was afraid that this movie might be just from watching the trailer. So. I wasn't sure what I was going to expect going into the movie, and I think that the movie starts out somewhat slow. Um, I think that it it takes a while um, to establish both characters, but once these two characters get together and once they set out on their road trip, uh, I think this movie is pretty irresistible. Um, And even though I think it's making... um, very broad and very uh, straightforward points about racism. Um, I also think that maybe that's what we need in 2018. Maybe maybe we need a movie that is just going to strip it down to sort of the bare essentials and just show us racism in the most straightforward way and say, look, this is this is bad. This is evil. Um, because it seems like, at, you know, 
as fundamentally as we would like to say that we're past that point, it doesn't seem like that's the case, especially nowadays. Um, so I think that I, I certainly understand where the criticisms of the movie as being very broad and being, you know, somewhat hokey in its treatment of, of racism are, uh, you know, I, I certainly understand those criticisms, but I also think that, you know, maybe that quality about it will allow it to reach a wider audience, which I think it should, because ultimately it does have a really good message and it has really great performances from Vigo Martinson and Mahershala Ali. Um, I think that they really elevate the script, which, you know, again, is, is pretty cut and dry, is pretty pretty straightforward. There's nothing particularly groundbreaking or insightful going on here, but I think that the performances add something you know, add a ton, add a ton of layers, um, you know, to the script and particularly Mahershala Ali. And we'll, we'll get into his performance more and his character more. Um, but I think that his character is very interesting here and not at all the cliche figure that I was expecting him to be set up as. So ultimately I don't think that this is, I wouldn't say this is one of the best movies of the year, but I'm very glad that I saw it. And I think it has an important message. and I think that people should go and see it. Yeah, so, I mean, going to this movie, I think I also had my critical uh, movie reviewer cap on. I I mean, I knew that it was, re- was reviewing well. I didn't read any reviews. I try not to before I go see a movie. And I also I knew that its Rotten Tomato score was high. I knew it had, it had won the National Board of Review's Best Picture. And so I was like, all right, this movie's getting a lot of hype. Honestly, like, bigger, I'm not, like, the, the biggest Viggo Mortensen fan. Like, not, you know, I'm not a... I'm not a a flag bearer for him, I'd say. I mean, he's great in Lord of the Rings. I love, I love him as Aragorn. Um, but I, I'm not in love with what is it Eastern Promises, and I, I can't remember. Oh, I love. Okay, well, we're we're gonna have a beef then off air because I love Eastern Promises. I think that movie's fantastic. All right. Okay. Well, then we'll have we'll have that beef off air. We'll but, have an off air beef. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no. But my my point is like I wasn't super thrilled. But I was like, okay, this it's like some. I like my 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 understanding of the movie coming into it was like, all right, it's some like buddy film of them like driving through the southeast. Yeah. And you know, it's Viggo Mortensen, and I love Mahershala Ali, so I'm all about that. But. Yeah, I wasn't sure what to expect. I, I didn't go in thinking that I was going to love it. I mean, there have been some movies this year where I've walked into Black Klansman, for example. I was like, I knew I was going to love, uh, or I wanted to love, let's put it that way. And I didn't necessarily want that from this one. But exactly to your point, like, I walked out. I love this movie. So, like, like cut and dry. You know, there are, there are times in this yeah. movie that leave me uneasy. Uh, not, I mean, obviously, for, for some of the obvious reasons, right, related to the racism, because you're not supposed to feel easy about that. But also, you know, there are moments about these characters, particularly particularly Tony, but I mean, also doc- Dr. Shirley, where you're not 100% sure with whether you like them as people or not. Right, yeah. But, but ultimately, you know, kind of similar to Can You Ever Forgive Me in a way, and, and the character that Melissa McCarthy is able to bring to light in terms of Lee, that, that version of Lee Israel, you know, you end up at the end of this movie really loving these characters. I, I, I shouldn't say you, I mean, but like for me, you know, I loved these characters at the end of the movie. And that is not something that I was expecting. It's not something that through the movie I was like, all right, give me a reason to love these characters. That wasn't necessarily what I was doing. But they won me over over the course of the film. And, and even though I have my reservations about you know, these characters as people, I think, that they, I, think, I think that the filmmakers would want you to say that you should have reservations about these people, especially Tony. And I think that you know, there are scenes, you know, very, very lonely scenes through the movie in terms of you know, them driving together in the car or you know, in their hotel rooms because uh, they wouldn't stay in the same hotels oftentimes in the Deep South. And, and you get these moments of, of, sh- of deep loneliness, and, and you really 
it gives you moments to really get at the core of these individuals. And I think this movie uh, does a really good job of that. You know, whether it's a combination of the script, which is written by Nick Vallelonga, which I think it's a, it's it's uh, Tony's son, like real life, yeah, real life son. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I anyway, but like so, so you have some family involvement from the Vallelonga side. Although I hear there is some controversy around portrayals of certain characters in this movie on hmm, the okay. uh, Doctor Shirley side of things. But, okay. uh, I mean, that's neither here nor there. I don't think it's relevant yeah. for us critiquing the movie because I don't think we're, we can really speak to the authenticity of that. But that right. being said, I, I think that whether it's the writing job or, or, in my personal opinion, the acting job is is up in the air. But ultimately, these characters won me over, and that wasn't something that I was necessarily, you know, looking to be won over for by these characters. Because, you know, neither of them leave a particularly good taste in my mouth at first inspection. And, but the fact that they are really authentically raw on the screen, or at least they're acted in such a way that they're like that, really wins me over the course of the scene. And yes, you know, maybe the plot's a bit formulaic. The narrative is, you know, the high points in the narrative are somewhat predictable. I was still really engaged, and I I did love this film at the end of it, especially the the final scene really brought a smile to my face. Yeah, and I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I think you can say this about both movies that we've discussed today. Not every movie has to be the most intellectually challenging experience, like yeah. on the face of the earth. And I think that's a lot of the what I what I take away from some of the critiques I'm seeing in this movie is that every you know you can't expect every movie about racism to be original. Sorry to bother you, yeah. or you know, blind spotting, or even Black Panther. Like you can't expect that every movie is going to challenge you, um, you know, in a, in a very complex way. I mean, I think. We have different movies for different people. But I think that this movie with its, you know, more relaxed storytelling, with its, you know, more straightforward themes, you know, conveys, still conveys a very powerful message about racism. And I don't think that, you know, it should be discounted because maybe it doesn't have all the, you know, intersectional qualities of some of these other movies which which i've mentioned i think it's a different kind of movie about racism and i think that's a good thing because i think it's going to reach a different audience and and probably an audience that may not go see sorry to bother you or or even black panther um so i i think it's important for that reason and i you know again i i agree with the fact that i think these characters are not so i mean it again i say that this movie's straightforward but that's not to take away anything from the the portrayal of the characters because i don't think they are just straightforward caricatures at all i think that like you said you're not certain how you feel about both characters um you know throughout the movie uh and i think that's important because you know obviously the movie is set up as sort of tony is the one who has to learn about racism but also there's a lot of things which dr shirley has to learn over the course of the movie as well and i think that that's what makes the movie uh, you know while I say it's straightforward, there is more to it than, you know, simply cliche, you know, one-dimensional characters that where you know exactly where they're headed. Yeah, I mean, I, there is no part of this movie, except for, I mean, okay, I'll, I'll rewind that back a little bit. The main characters in this movie, certainly, there's no part of them that are one-dimensional. Of course, they, they fit a lot of, well, I shouldn't say they, I think that um, Tony fits a lot of stereotypes of, like, <laughs> You know, your, yes. you know, your, 
uh, what's the right like Italian American from the '60s New Yorker of yeah. and the like the way that he talks and the way that he treats other people and the way that you expect him to treat other people uh, even to the point where like the opening scene of him working at you know, Copacabana nightclub in New York you're like okay th- this guy is is a hustler um, to, to be frank and he even calls him I mean right. he even admits that he's a hustler um, and you you don't know how you feel about that or you know how you feel about that and you're and you're uncomfortable feeling that way. Maybe it's a better way to put it. And I think that this does such a beautiful job letting you sit with that, letting you have to be okay with that, and then over the course of the film, slowly feeding you more humanity, more information about these characters, and forcing you to reevaluate constantly your judgments of those characters without telling you, you should feel this way or you should feel this way. Uh, And I think that the you have that element kind of in the foreground of the scene and then the backdrop you have all these questions about you know racism being observed and you know it's one of the problems that i had with this film is that you know in some moments it gets the racism gets very serious of course there is a scene which you know mahershala ali's character dr shirley is literally almost beaten to death in a bar um but at times it also i think does put its but it does put its foot on the brake of racism in the south and and I think that part of that is to is to make it palatable for people to go see. If it leaned as hard as maybe it should into you know the the, the Jim Crow racism of the South, then it, I mean honestly it becomes less viewable. But at, I don't necessarily. That's not necessarily a critique. I think it's just something that needs to be noted. Like there are some very serious scenes of racism, and then there are some more like in, in relative terms more vanilla scenes of racism. Both are important to acknowledge and to understand as a part of Jim Crow South, but. I think that in some moments it, it it actually does lean back a little bit to make it more palatable to its viewers, and I understand why it does that. I think in some ways that's it's admirable because it wants more people to see it, not just in terms of a money making aspect of it. Which I mean, I guess if you're Warner Brothers or whoever it is that is distributing this film, I guess it's DreamWorks, so Universal. Um, whoever you know, they they want to make money off the movie, obviously, but also you know you want your message to get out to more people, and I think that if, if you lean too hard into something, it you know maybe it'll become it won't become as popular like something like Blind Spotting, which has a really powerful message. But uh, I mean, I haven't looked at the number like the final numbers for its box office run, but probably didn't make that much money at the box office. And so I understand the reasoning both in terms of a business perspective and also just from a drawing more people in perspective. But I don't think that you get a free pass for you know representing something as a little bit not as bad as it could as it probably actually was yeah no i mean i definitely think that's fair yeah so i I mean so we've talked a little bit about our high level thoughts here i think it's time to dive into two performances that we both acknowledge are probably two of the best performances of the year and you know i don't want to put words in your mouth so i'll let you say it yourself you know we'll start with Viggo mortensen you know what did you think of his performance what did you think of tony lip as a character yeah i think you're right when you say that he set up He's definitely of the two of them set up as more of the stereotype, right? Like more of the, the you know, hard-edged Brooklyn guy with not a lot of uh, book smarts, but a lot of street smarts. Um, and I think that he does a nice job of going beyond that. Uh, you know, we, we talked about bringing emotional depth to, uh, you know, a performance in Creed 2 and I think he does the same thing here Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the journey that this character goes on over the course of the movie uh, from the beginning of the movie where he literally throws away two glasses at his house because they were touched by two black repairmen who Mm -hmm. came to his house um, 
to you know the po- a point where he's literally bringing uh, Doctor Shirley into his house for Christmas dinner. Yep. One doesn't go on that journey uh, lightly, and I think that we uh, feel every step of that journey with Viggo Mortensen. Uh, you know, as the movie goes on, and as as he is exposed to these more blatant acts of racism, and really sort of the the fact that he isn't a complicated man, I think really aids the fact aids his sense of understanding in these scenes because just from a common sense perspective, things like not allowing you know Mahershala Ali to buy this suit um, because he's black just don't make common sense like do not make logical sense and you know in the climactic scene the fact that oh they've invited him here to this uh, hotel to play the christmas show but they won't feed him in the hotel restaurant like it it, it just doesn't make sense and so the fact that um (laughs) tony is such a simple man and that he understands things in probably a more cut and dry way i think helps you know the fact that he Help helps you know his, his journey to appreciating uh, you know the racism that that uh, Doctor Shirley has to face on a daily basis, and I think that Viggo Mortensen does a great job of uh, you know just portraying the ultimately the the sympathy that um, that Tony begins to feel for this character uh, because you know they're both outsiders in a sort of way, um, but they bond over the fact that they're outsiders, and so. While I think that maybe the emotional journey for uh, for Viggo Mortensen happens a, a tad, maybe it's a tad rushed. Uh, I think for him to go from, you know, like I said, throwing the glasses away to a couple scenes later agreeing to drive Doctor Shirley around for you know two months, I understand that he needed the money, but it seems like a big jump right from the beginning. But I think once the movie gets in again like i said once it gets into the road trip and we have these more specific incidents of racism that both men are encountering um i think that vigo mortensen really hits his stride with this performance yeah i think that your note about his his like early character development's an interesting one i also was kind of thinking about that too at the beginning of the movie and and how right he goes from throwing glasses away uh in his house to you know being a chauffeur for a black man and i think that for me, I can I can see it because of the fact that you, you don't you know he, he his form of racism is this more subtle uh, the what might be called like implicit racism um, that you see right, more commonly say, today. Say, yeah, he's saying things like you know how do why don't you know who James Brown and Sam Cooke are, are like these are your people exactly like, so stuff like that. It's racism like that that you see and. In some way, right, like, I, I can understand the sensibility of, you know, I'm going to, th- I don't want black people to necessarily be a part of uh, my home, my, like, personal space. But you know what? At the end of the day, like, I'm going to get paid a lot of money for, well, relative, you know, get, you know, put food on the table, get that rent paid. Like, I can see, like, his, the level of racism in which he, like, lives his life at is one that I can, I can understand. It's not that big of a jump for me to him to go work for this person. Uh, of course, that being said, you see that he has reservations. You see it in, you know, not only in the way that he reacts to some of the tasks that he's being assigned, but also how he, you know, interacts with, you know, his family, his, 
you know, his, I, I don't know, I don't even know who these people are that, you know, he kind of comes across them in, I think is it in Louisiana or somewhere along the way, and maybe it's in North Carolina, I can't remember, the, the people who offer him work, um, if he quits the, quits the chauffeur job, essentially, and, and to me, it, it, he, you know, he's the kind of guy where his sensibilities are more, are more three-dimensional than one-dimensional, right, or, uh, you know, his sensibilities aren't just like, all right, I am racist, and so I do not want to be around black people, or like, I am like, uh, 100% a family man, and I'm only going to, you know, do things for my family, I'm only going to do things for, you know, my close inner circle. You know, he's someone whose sensibilities and his, you know, inner morality or, or something, well, one, is kind of in, in flux and in limbo, you never really nail that down completely, but I think that's that doesn't speak to, like, poor character development, I think that speaks to, you know, humanity and reality and being more than one thing, and I think that I actually appreciate, you know, the element of this character of Tony Lip that is more like, you know what, yeah, I don't I wish that they didn't send black repairmen to my house to like fix something. And yeah, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and throw these glasses away because we don't really need them. And I don't really want, you know, to be drinking from the same glass at the same time. Like, look, if this black man is going to pay me $125 a week for, for me to drive him around for eight weeks and I don't have to like pay for my own living expenses because everything's going to be paid for me, I'll take that money. And yeah, I'm not going to write home and be happy about it, but it puts food on the table and that's what you got to do sometimes. And I, and I like that three dimensionality of that character. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I don't think it was a huge issue for me. It was just from the beginning, uh, you know, I, I felt that there could have been more there mm-hmm. to set up the fact that, like, because I didn't get the sense that, like, how, just how desperate they were for the money. Yeah, that's fair. Um, because that's fair. I can understand it in a situation, you know, like you're saying, where they're so desperate for the money that, you know, if he doesn't take the next job that comes his way, then you know, they're going to go insolvent or whatever. Um, but I, I don't know that they set it up quite to the extent that, that that was my understanding of their financial situation. Uh, but again, it wasn't something that was a huge issue, mm-hmm. uh, for me, for me, I just think once they get into the actual road trip, I think that the journey that Tony goes on and that his change in attitudes is, is more believable based on the things that he is experiencing while he's with Dr. Sherman. Yeah, absolutely. And why don't we go ahead and, and switch gears here to talk about Dr. Shirley, Mahershala Ali, you know, Academy Award winning Mahershala Ali for his best his supporting actor role in Moonlight back in 2016. You know, is he someone who could win another Oscar this year? I, I certainly hope that he is given the, the uh, consideration that he deserves, because I think most of the buzz that I've seen in terms of acting for this movie is more surrounding Viggo Mortensen, but I mm-hmm. actually think that I enjoyed Mahershala Ali's performance more, and I think that his character is the more interesting and complex of the two, because he's he exists in this really interesting universe. Like he again, he wasn't set up in the way that I expected, because yes, he obviously he is a he is a black man, so he doesn't fit in with you know white culture and with he's never going to be accepted by the, you know these white people that he's encountering in the south but at the same time he also kind of doesn't fit in with black culture as well and that that's kind of what tony is pointing out to him in, in a way that is yes pretty tone deaf and like it does like you say show that sort of implied racism but it's also reflected in the loneliness that like dr shirley feels because he he he, he feels like he's he's caught in between sort of two worlds because he is a more sophisticated like more well-off lives in a nice apartment above carnegie hall in a time when 
many African Americans, uh, you know, were not in this position. Uh, we're, we're not in the same position as him. And we see various scenes in the movie where they sort of take offense to him. Like, for example, when uh, he walks into a bar at one point and like that is you know an african-american bar and all of the the individuals in there sort of turn it and and stare at him because he's you know he's much more well-dressed than them he has his white chauffeur with him it's clear that he doesn't quite fit in uh with you know their version of what it is to be african-american and and so i think that he he does a great job of again like i said portraying the loneliness of this character because he doesn't he doesn't have a place where he belongs. Um, and I, I really love the scene towards the, end of the, towards the end of the movie that it's that bar scene where he eventually ends up playing the piano and, you know, the, the bar, the patrons of the bar start, you know, erupt in applause basically for his, uh, his piano playing. And I think we see on, on his face, cause he doesn't smile very much in the movie. Uh, he, he smiles in this moment though, because I think he feels a connection maybe with, uh, the African American community in a way that he wasn't able to. So I think it's it's just a really interesting character because everything is not. I mean, this is a you know to be on the nose about it. Everything is not black and white. Um, he's he he exists like I said in this middle ground that I think uh, makes him a a more emotionally relatable character to anyone who's going to see this movie. Um, and I think that Mahershala Ali uh, does a great job of portraying again you know the journey that he goes on from sort of someone who doesn't really have time to he doesn't have time for for someone like tony who doesn't seem to understand uh you know who he is doesn't seem to understand you know why he he is experiencing racism and doesn't understand his role in the african-american community uh, to someone who sees the the good in tony and sees that unlike most of the people he encounters tony is actually trying to change himself and trying to better himself uh and so i think that all of the elements of this performance uh in combination create one of the strongest supporting performances of the year if not the strongest yeah i'm absolutely i find you know also to kind of add on to these points like we, again, I, I bring this up a lot, but I think it's worth mentioning because there are certain actors who play a, a certain type of character really well, and Mahershala Ali is an actor who plays any type of character you ask him to. Like this is this is not Boggs from The Hunger Games. This isn't uh, his. You know, this isn't Remy Danton from House of Cards. This isn't you know. I mean, this isn't Juan from Moonlight. This is a performance that is different from anything I've ever seen him do before, and. He crushes it. Like, he just crushes it. And he's able to adopt a persona that you ask him to take on, and and he does it perfectly, it seems like. he. Or I didn't even say, not even necessarily perfectly, but he seamlessly does it. He he is... He's he, a chameleon, yeah. Yeah, he's a... He, well, I mean, I don't... Yeah, I mean, chameleon's an interesting word for it, right? I think that's... I'd have to think about that, whether I, I, I agree with mm-hmm. the, the oh, chameleon yes, nature, because I think he does stand out, right? He, yes, he's so good yeah. that he stands out. Um, but, but for me, you know, he is one of the best actors in the business about playing roles that, that you can throw in front of him. That's kind of like, uh, anything with the, you know, anything with the kid, including the kitchen sink, you can throw at him and, uh, he'll, he'll take it on. No questions asked. Cause you know, this is a regal sort I mean, like highbrow, um, elitist performance. And that's not something that you've seen him do before yet. He can do it. 
he can do it. And, you know, like like I mentioned earlier and like you brought up when you were talking about his character just now, you're not sure how you feel about him because, yeah, you understand that, like, you know, he, his life isn't easy from the beginning because he's a black man in 1962. You know, that's not an easy life. That being said, he, you know... He has it easier than a lot of other African Americans. Yeah. That's where the tension comes from. Yeah, tra- traditionally he has it absolutely easier than than other African Americans, and he sits in his I- literally his ivory tower. Yeah. <laughs> above Carnegie Hall, and doesn't have to worry about many of the the same concerns of the average you know American. He doesn't have to worry about the same concerns you know color aside. He doesn't have to worry about the same concerns that Tony Lip has to worry about, and you know. You go into this, you see his apartment, you see he has elephant tusks just, like, chilling. He literally sits on a throne in his apartment. And you're like, wow, you know, it can't be easy to be this guy, but, like, I don't think I feel bad for this guy. I don't, and I, he's not that relatable. But then, you know, you get these scenes where you dive deep into his psyche, uh, you, you learn a little bit more about his character and what he's been through in his life, and you're like, you know what? You know, this guy's life, life isn't easy either, and the reason for that is exactly as you described, because, you know... He, he's not white enough for the white people. He's not black enough for the black people. And he sits somewhere in the middle. And the scene towards the end of the movie where, you know, this really comes to a head is one of my favorite scenes in this in this movie. I'm not sure if it'll be the scene that I point to at the end, at the end when we wrap things up. But the scene where he, you know, gets out of the car, walks out in the rain, and, and has a basically a shouting match with Tony about, you know, how, like, what he has to deal with on a day-to-day basis, on a moment basis. The reason why he drinks a bottle of, you know, scotch or rum or whatever that alcohol is that he drinks every single night in his room, you know, that is that is a, a, a nuance to his character and a depth to his character that Mahershal Ali just does so well. And, and you know, as much as you know about him, to go back to this kind of three-dimensional character note that I was talking earlier about with Tony, I think this is also true of, of Dr. Shirley here, but played by Mahershal Ali. I think that Yes, he's rich, and also yes, he's black, and you know he doesn't necessarily deal with the stereo the the stereotypical problems of someone who is rich or someone who is black, but he still deals with these problems. And at the same time, you know he you know it, his sexuality comes into question sometimes in the movie, um, and that becomes yeah. A, which uh, just to, to cut in, I don't think they. I I honestly like. When it came up, I was like, oh, interesting. But then it did not go anywhere. That that subplot did not go anywhere. Yeah. And I think that, for me, like, it, it was it was just a weird scene to me because we have Tony who walks in and he discovers, you know, what has been going on. The fact that, you know, Mahershala Ali has been with another man at the swimming pool or at the gym at the YMCA. And he just, he's just kind of like, okay. like, And I, and I feel like okay, yeah, so maybe he's coming around on race, but, like, this is a totally different animal. I don't think that you can make the connection that because, oh, he, you know, he's he's starting to understand uh, him from a racial perspective that, oh, he's also, you know, g- going to be completely understanding of the fact that Mahershala Ali is gay as well. And mm-hmm. then it just doesn't go anywhere with that. So I understand that maybe they were sticking to a real incident that happened, but yeah, I felt like that was maybe uh, an example of the movie trying to do a little bit too much and sort of just throwing this other element in there that they didn't really need to establish, you know, again, like I said, the loneliness of Mahershala Ali's character. Yeah, I actually agree. You know, if I had to point to a plot thread that I thought was probably the least needed, I I definitely agree. It's, it's this kind of scene because you're right that it comes up here and it doesn't come up again. And I don't think it's bad because it doesn't come up again. It's just like, all right, even if this is a real life, it, it, it would come up 
again, though. That's the thing. Like, it's it, it's something that they wouldn't just ignore. Like, that's my thing. Sure, and I think that I mean, y- yes, I, I, from that perspective, it, sh- it like it would come up again. But but for me, just for me, like it's not bad because it doesn't come up again. Like again, like people's like personalities and people's characters are three-dimensional like certain things are important and things that you think would be a big deal don't necessarily have to be a big deal to some people but like you said it would come up again but for me the problem with it is is that like even if this is true like just in terms of refining your scope for a movie it's not needed like just because he gets beaten up and you know in in this ymca for you know being with another another man which is something that is like absolutely taboo in, in 1962 um it, it to your point, it, and to emphasize it, it doesn't it doesn't add much to this movie, and it just makes me go like, okay, exactly your response, even like, all right, and then no, like nothing comes of it, and that's fine, but it, it is weak. I agree. Yeah, but yeah, and and I think so. I mean, we've talked about these two characters; they're three dimensional, they're wonderful characters, they're acted extraordinarily well, in my opinion, and and regardless of you know the the character flaws that each of them certainly have again by the to emphasize my point from earlier uh at the beginning of our discussion you end up loving these characters by the end or, or at the very least you you identify with some element of them such that you're you are invested in both of them yeah absolutely cool so moving on i mean there really aren't too many other actors or actresses in this movie and you know the, yet there is still a supporting cast that i want to give a second i think the the you know the most prominent of which is Linda Cardellini as Dolores Vallelong, which is Tony Lip's wife. I don't know if you want to mention anything about her, but I just wanted to note that she looks super familiar for a little while in this movie. And I was trying to place her, and I was doing a little googling around after I saw the movie, and she plays Velma in the live-action Scooby-Doo movies, oh, yeah. which is which yeah, is why she was familiar to me. Probably her most notable role. Yeah, I mean, I'd literally never heard of anything else she'd been in, or in, like prominent roles that she's been in. But what did you think of of? Linda Cardellini's performance here, like, was it a, a nice bonus? Was it something that stuck out particularly to you, or, or was it, you know, kind of unneeded? So I really actually enjoy Linda Cardellini as an actress, and this I think I think this is the second movie this year in which she has been underutilized, the other movie being A Simple Favor, in which she was only in one scene, but I thought had a great scene. I didn't even realize she was in that movie. Disappointing movie. She played the artist. But I think I think she does a nice job. She brings a nice light touch to her performance as Tony's wife. Again, you know, there's not a lot for her to do, but I do like the scenes of her like reading the letters. Um, Those are that so funny. Obviously, Doctor Shirley has helped Tony write, but then ultimately at the end we have that great scene. Maybe the the biggest laugh I had in the movie when Doctor Shirley comes into the. Um, comes into their house for Christmas dinner, meets her for the first time, and she says sort of low to him, I uh, thank you for helping him with the letters. Um, you know, <laughs> she knew all along. Um, so I, I think she brings maybe maybe a more comic, comedic, light touch to it. Um, but I did like her scenes with Vigo Mortensen, and I would have liked to see more of her in this movie, although I do think she does a good job with what she has. Yeah, no, she, de- she definitely adds a nice little light, comedic touch to to several of the scenes, the one you noted, of course, and, you know, any of the letter-writing scenes are just, I mean, you just crack up. It's so funny. Because you, yeah. you, you, you start thinking about it, it, it from these people's perspective, this is coming from Tony and not Dr. Shirley, and it's just, it's it, it's hard to fathom Tony Lip writing these right. letters, obviously, so it's funny. So moving on to the plot, we've, we've mentioned, you know, one of the elements that we thought was weak about it uh, in terms of the, the pool, the YMCA scene. 
But what did you think of this plot overall, right? Like, in some in some ways, it's formulaic, it's stereotypical, it's this sort of, like, buddy, cross-country road trip comedy drama that, you know, you've seen it before. Of course, it has a very different flavor, a very different spin than a lot of those movies. But what did you think of it? I mean, I, I will say, like, I don't think that the plotting is anything particularly revolutionary. Um, I think that this movie has some pretty has some scenes that you kind of expect to see, you know, it has the scene, the scenes of, you know, violence where, uh, you know, they, uh, where, where Mahershala Ali's character is attacked by white individuals. It has, you know, this scene where they get thrown in jail together. Uh, and ultimately, you know, it has this big sort of emotional payoff scene where they both walk out and say, Hey, he's not playing the concert if you don't feed him. Um, and so I think that, you know, Plotting-wise, there's nothing particularly fresh or original going on here. It follows a pretty um, tried-and-true course when it comes to, you know, road trip movies. Um, But I think, you know, again, other elements of the movie uh, outshine that formula and make it so that the formula doesn't drag the movie down. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. In terms of the plotting, it's probably not one of the stronger elements of the movie, but I don't know that the movie was necessarily severely hindered because of it yeah i think that's a really good way to put it i think the the plot is something that <laughs> this is almost maybe a weird thing to say and, and you know may disagree if you if you do but the plot is sort of it's often the other way around but the, the, i feel like the plot is a mechanism for just like more character development and, and like that sounds like something that's like really duh obvious but like character i feel like a lot of times character development drives plot in, in movies, but in this movie, it's, like, oddly kind of reversed, and so it feels kind of weird, where it's like, all right, they got to drive to the next city so we can learn something new about uh, these characters and, you know, explore their their psyches and their personalities a little bit more. Really, I think in other movies, it's like, oh, like, this thing happened, like, this development, character development happened, and so this next thing must happen in the plot kind of kind of way. I don't know if that makes sense at all, but that's kind of how I feel. Like, this, this film epitomizes that for me. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree. I, I think that certainly the plot is necessary and like you know these incidents that i'm talking about are necessary in order to get the character development that we ultimately have but the plot doesn't go in any unexpected directions really except for maybe the the scene which reveals that he's gay but again i think that they didn't really do very much with that at all um but i think you know you're not going to be surprised about where the plot goes but i you know i I, all, all of these scenes are of course important to you know ultimately the emotional payoff that we are talking about uh you know the fact that it is satisfying yeah absolutely i I mean i don't know if we have too much more to talk about for this movie i I did want to kind of throw a a kind of higher level question out about this about this film in terms of like you know it's this movie is a strange one to categorize in some ways and in the ultimately where i came out on this and i've mentioned this already is it's kind of like a it's a buddy road trip sort of movie obviously one with a very different flavor and you know what what did what did you think of the of the kind of genre or the medium for which this movie tries to convey its message of of racism and and things that um, questions that we still need to address and and that are relevant even today right like i think it makes sense because it does allow for these very uh, you know in-your-face confrontational episodes, which, like I said, are the type of episodes which are necessary for, you know, for Tony really to learn his lesson. Like, for him to learn his lesson about racism, I think he really has to be confronted with some of these, you know, issues head-on. And so I think it, it makes sense for this movie to play out 
over, you know, the course of two months, uh, you know, over the course of, you know, this whole series where they're, they're in the car together, basically spending all their time together. Um, and, you know, visiting these various Southern cities where it really just doesn't get any better for, uh, you know, Dr. Shirley, wherever he goes, it's, it's really just, he faces the same treatment. Um, and you know, there's even, there's even that moment where he says to Tony, you know, well, what I, if I walked into a bar and if I walked into a white bar in, in Boston or I mean, in New York, would it be any different? Like, would, would I be getting treated any different? Uh, so I think it, the road trip structure of the movie, um, you know, obviously it's, it's true to life. Uh, but I, I think it also helps um, because the movie. I think the, the movie works better as as a more sort of anecdotal, episodic story uh, of these two characters in various situations. Um, you know, learning to understand each other. I think it's necessary that they you know are in this situation where they're kind of stuck with each other, right? Like they they have to spend all this time to, with each other because they're in the car with each other. You know, Tony's sort of providing security in a way for, for Dr. Shirley as well. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think, I think it works well, even though of course it is a structure we've seen before. Yeah. Now that was the thing for me. It was like, all right, think of movies that are maybe the, the cl- most closely aligned with the message of this movie. I, I think black Klansman, which is obviously such a different kind of movie and what, in the medium through which it's conveying its message is is this one of like solidarity of a black police officer trying to do something that is, is quote-unquote right or whatever and, and you know, take on the KKK, right? This one's very yeah. different. This movie's not taking on racism. This movie is, you know, essentially, it's weird to say because it's obviously such a relevant central message of the movie, but it, it leaves sort of the question of race in the in not in the foreground of the movie, right? The foreground of the movie is this, all right, got to get him from point A to point B so he can play his play his music and we can collect our money and whatnot. And then the racism is the, is the, on the back burner, so to speak. Although clearly the message is not on the back burner. That is the central message yes. of the movie. And I, I, en- I enjoy that it, it, I mean, obviously these movies are planned apart. They're not like, it's not like they would copy each other from, you know, inception and, and, you know, structure and development and whatnot. But I appreciated the, the sort of uh, complementary nature of, uh, you know, maybe it, it's most, similar movie of the year i, I think to black Klansman, and, and i appreciate the different medium for which it delivers uh, at some point it's a very similar message yeah and again i think that you know it, it is familiar and it is sort of you know in your face at some points but i think that again like i said up front maybe this is what we need in 2018 uh you know to to have this sort of stripped down story of two people who despite you know racial differences in a time when racial differences meant a lot uh you know come to under understand and appreciate each other as human beings uh i think that however whatever means that a filmmaker could choose to get that point across um ultimately if he gets that point across i think it's succeeded and i think the movie does do that i agree all right i think it's time to wrap this one up scott what's your favorite moment or favorite scene from green book Gosh, it's hard. It's hard to pinpoint one, but I guess I will go back to that scene which I mentioned earlier in the African American bar, where uh, you know they've walked mm-hmm. in. Uh, this is this is of course after they've walked out um, of the the hotel where Doctor Shirley said he will not play the concert because they wouldn't let him eat, and 
there's a you know an unoccupied piano on stage he's sort of interacting with the bartender and she dares him to get up there he gets up there and, and plays and you know sort of wows everyone and then the, the african-american band comes back out there and starts playing and he joins right in with them and he's i think it's also important in that scene that like he's he's playing a type of music like that he's generally doesn't play but that is more like uh, associated with the african-american culture of the time so I, again it's this moment where he suddenly feels a little bit less lonely because he has connected with you know the greater african-american community through his own talents um yeah and while, while, of course, ultimately, it's not important that he, you know, he's a, he is a black man. He doesn't have to conform to, you know, the, the cult, the, what is generally considered African-American culture. But for him, it, it sort of is this cathartic moment, um, which, again, combats that loneliness that he feels. Um, and so I, I really liked that scene for really bringing around, uh, you know, the, the tension that this character feels and, and mm. having a payoff that uh, feels right and feels satisfying. Yeah, I agree. If you hadn't brought the scene, I would have, because it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And yeah. to add on a little bit about that, it's, it's not just the scene where he kind of shrugs off the music that he normally plays, although he does normally play pop music. Uh, he doesn't yes. play classical uh, piano to the to his audiences. He, he plays his own sort of, not jazz, but pop music of the time. And that's what really resonates with people. And, and I like the fact that not only do you get the jazz element when the rest of the band comes up on stage in that scene, when he goes up on stage uh, by himself and plays for the first time, he plays the music that he was trained to play, the classical music. And the fact that that's the moment that he shares that, he's clearly appreciated for that. You know, he's not he's not necessarily integrating himself or conforming to, you know, black America of that time by playing that. But he wins them over through that because, you know, to his point, Earlier in the scene, when he literally, or not early in the scene, but earlier in the movie, when he literally says this, you know, no one else can play Chopin like he can, and mm. like that, and the fact that he shows that and he's appreciated for that, and then plays that jazz music, that that scene, it it, it does it does a lot for me. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, and to, just to be different, to talk about a different scene, um, I, I think that there are so many good ones to choose from, but one that's very memorable. For me, it is when you, he is, is the rock scene, so the, the Jade Rock outside of... Yeah. Uh, they stop to get gas, and I think it's on the way... I don't know if it's before Pittsburgh or after Pittsburgh, but essentially Tony st- you know, steals this rock, this Jade Rock, from a from a gas station that's just selling random cool-looking rocks, I guess. I'm not 100% sure. And you get this back and forth when he gets back in the car where Mahershala Ali's character, Dr. Shirley, refuses to let Tony drive off until he either puts the rock back or or pays for it, and which he offers to pay for it for the rock for him. Um, and that, that back and forth uh, is a really memorable scene to me in, in the movie, and I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that yeah that, that's a good one. It has payoff throughout the movie as well. Absolutely. And then another good scene, just to throw another one in there, is uh, it's a moment more than a scene where he just... It's in... I forget, again, which city it is, but if it's not Pittsburgh, it's... Um, it's the next one after that, maybe Cleveland or, or somewhere in Ohio. And it, there's no Steinway uh, piano on stage. Yeah, and yeah, he just slaps the stage manager. And then it cuts immediately to him, uh, of course, Mahershala Ali's character playing on Steinway. Yeah. Funny moment. There, there are so many great scenes of Mahershala Ali just giving disapproving glances. Like, I think that <laughs> might be his his best quality of this performance is he is, he is great at giving disapproving glances. 
Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. His facial expressions throughout this movie, they they say so much. You know, obviously the saying goes that like whatever, like ninety percent of communication is nonverbal, and Mahershala like, cr- crushes the nonverbal communication in this in this performance. Yeah. All right, Scott, let's let's really put a bow on this one. What score are you giving Green Book? I'm giving it an eight. Um, I think it is not you know again nothing insightful, nothing truly groundbreaking, but it is a very charming and very well acted movie. Uh, with a great message that I think people should absolutely go and see. So, 8. Cool. I'm giving it an 8.8, and uh, I think that means we both think this movie is pretty good. So, yeah, yeah I, I don't know if it's going to end up being one of my favorite films of the year, but I did really enjoy it. I, I saw this last night, and, and I think you did as well, so it's still very fresh for us. We'll see what mm-hmm. maybe shakes out in our end-of-year discussions you know, as, as we get those approached, but there's a little bit of time before that, so... We'll kind of see how if it has a lasting effect at all on us, and and maybe we'll know more by then. But let's take yeah. another yeah, let's take another short break, and when we return, we'll talk about a few more movies before we hit the schmodown and some news. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part three of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, I was able to see a, a, kind of a change of form here, because you're usually the one who sees more movies than I do on your breaks, but True. over Thanksgiving, uh, during my time off, I was able to see a, a few extra movies than, uh, that goes beyond the, the slate of our podcast schedule, and both of which I'd like to share my thoughts on now, and I'm going to start with the one I saw first, just in chronological order here. I saw the new animated version of, of The Grinch, Dr. Seuss's The Grinch, uh, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, voice starring Benedict Cumberbatch as as the voice of the Grinch, uh, as well as a few others, most notably of which I, I think should be um, should be is it Keenan Thompson from SNL. He is this he has this minor role as uh, Bricklebaum, who's a, a the most jolly citizen of Whoville, and a really really memorable performance from him. But uh, the other kind of main uh, performances include Cameron Seeley, who plays Cindy Lou Who. Um, very, uh, there's nothing like original about this r- remake of, of the Grinch. So the, the plot's pretty, pretty standard. And then Rashida Jones is Donna Lou who, who is Cindy's overworked and, and, uh, single mother. And then Angela Lansbury plays, uh, the mayor, which I thought was kind of funny. Gosh, I'd, how he, old is she now? I mean, murder she wrote herself, I think. Yeah. I'm not 90, 93. Really? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, she's old, but Good for her. but the mayor of Whoville, so that's what that's really all you can say. And then yeah. also another notable voice role to, to call it here, Pharrell Williams is the narrator, which is great. Um oh, that was really fun. There's just some very strange performances uh in terms of voice acting in this film. Obviously Benedict Cumberbatch <laughs> is kind of the the one that you saw advertised for this film because he's the biggest name by far. Uh, uh, in terms of popularity, what, what he's done with with Sherlock and and on also other other movies, including The Imitation Game, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some really obvious ones here off the top of my head from his recent performances. But that being said, I was texting you after I saw this movie, and I called this movie probably the most average movie of, ever, of ever, in every department of 2018. I think that like if you looked up the 2018 uh, definition of average movies, this is what this is what should be there. I think that this movie does nothing wrong, and it doesn't do anything particularly right either. It's cute. Uh, obviously, the 
the animation of of Max the dog uh, is is cute. The there's a couple other animals that go in the movie that are uh, very cute. There's uh, some reindeer or just moose. I can't. I don't actually know which it is. To be honest, maybe that's my fault. But uh, yeah, they they either reindeer or moose or some weird hybrid of the two. Those animals are pretty cute in the movie. But it also like you know, it doesn't do anything right. Like the plot is. I mean, we've said this several times before. It doesn't have to be original. It doesn't have to be anything new or innovative. But it's standard. It's textbook. It's the Grinch, right? Um, and it's it's messages enduring. It's the messages, of course, like uh, what's important about Christmas is not the presents you get. It's about the people you spend it with and, and the people that make Christmas what Christmas is to you and to your family. And, and it's a apropos message in, in a time where there's a lot of division in the country that uh, you need to, the people that matter to you are the ones that you should hold close and should prioritize and you shouldn't worry about the, you know, the secular nature of Christmas, so to speak. But that being said, like, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't deliver that message in any sort of way that's memorable. It's, you know, you have Benedict Cumberbatch's The Grinch still in all of Whoville's presence on Christmas and then having some weird sort of change of heart through this interaction with Cindy Lou Who and then uh, his heart grows by, you know, 300%, and, you know, he, he, you know, tries to return all these gifts to Whoville, and in this touching, you know, kind of end moment is invited into the, uh, the Lou Who household, and, you know, that's where his, you know, the payoff is in terms of, you know, he finally feels welcome and included in Christmas over, after all, so many years where he's felt alone and, and, and disregarded, and, and, you know, that is that. And I, I honestly just don't have that much more to say. I think the big standout thing for me, besides Keenan Thompson's very memorable voice acting performance, is Tyler, the creator, does the music for the, <laughs> the music. So he has this... Naturally, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does the I am the Grinch and you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch, for this for this soundtrack, which is honestly... It, I don't, Scott, I don't know if you have the chance to go listen to it, but I'm sure it's on Spotify. You should go listen to it. It's, yeah. really, it's actually really good. Um, but because All of right. that, I come out... And a very average score. It's a, or actually slightly above average because I think that Tyler, the creator, and uh, and uh, T- Keenan Thompson pull it up by a fraction. But I'm giving this movie a six point two. Yeah, that that. I mean, I, again, I haven't seen it, but feels fair based on your review. And while the the message may be very welcome, I don't think I'm going to be rushing out to see this one. No, it's one of those films where it's like if if you and your family. Uh, want to watch a movie on you know around the holidays? Whether I mean, if it was Thanksgiving, great. You went and saw it on Thanksgiving. If it's Christmas, that's a, that's great too because it's it's a family movie. Like it's a good family movie. People are gonna have a good time because it's the Grinch. Like everyone knows the story. It's cute. It's cute enough, and you know it's heartwarming enough. And if your family is averse to seeing something, you know, a little bit more edgy, like Widows, for example, which was kind of this movie was competing with. If if you're not like the thriller or action type of family and and this is what you want to go see like it's going to get the job done but you know it's nothing to write home about yeah yeah and you know on that note switching switching gears to widows here widows steve directed by steve mcqueen starring a ensemble cast which includes viola davis is stacked yeah including viola davis in the main role is veronica rawlings who is kind of a well okay to back up a little bit here you know the opening of this movie is Actually, Liam Neeson and his gang, his crew of pe- of people who steal money for a living, basically his his you know in this final heist that they're doing, um, they all die. They get caught. They um and are all killed in this kind of <laughs> kind of inglorious explosion and and shootout at a warehouse. And this leaves Viola Davis, Elizabeth Debicki, 
Michelle Rodriguez and one other person who plays a more minor role who I haven't actually bothered to look up her name. Was Maybe Cynthia Arivo? Uh, no, actually, it's not Cynthia Arivo. She is, ends up being like the fourth member of that crew, but okay. I think it's actually Carrie Coon who plays uh, oh, okay. the fourth person, but she plays a more minor role. She doesn't join the crew. Uh, but basically, it leaves them in a in a tough spot. One because they're now all widows, but two, uh, these characters start approaching Viola Davis. Particularly, um, I think it's Brian Tyree Henry plays Jamal Manning, oh, who good. is a politician uh, first and foremost. He's running for uh, the thirteenth. I can't remember which district. They're essentially aldermen of this district of Chicago. Uh, it's a very minor role. It's not even the mayor. Um, yeah. But the point is, it's this very intense race between uh, Brian Tyree Henry's character, Jamal Manning, and uh, Kurt, is it Colin? No, not Kurt Russell. Colin Farrell, uh, Jack Mulligan, who is the son of Robert Duvall's Tom Mulligan, who's kind of been in power, the alderman of this district, for years and years, and, and sort of established this dynasty. And then this intense political uh, runoff, you also have this character of, it turns out that Liam Neeson was stealing money from Jamal Manning, and Jamal Manning, who also is a crime boss, you know, wants his money back and approaches Viola Davis and gives her this ultimatum of, look, you're either going to get the $2 million your husband stole from me back, or you're going to have serious trouble from me. And you get some really memorable performances out of this movie. Viola Davis kind of brings this gang of people together, which I kind of already mentioned is, you know, Michelle Rodriguez, who for me is kind of, her performances have gotten a little bit stale in recent movies, I think she always kind of wears the same uh, wears the same acting persona and delivers a very similar role. She still does it well. I'm not complaining about that. But I, you, you get exactly what you expect from her in these movies, and that's not something outstanding, but it's not something bad either. It's somewhere in the middle. But I think the real standout performances for me in this movie, um, well, you've already mentioned Sarantha Erivo, who's not as, I'm not saying she's the standout role. I think she does a really good job, but she's not the standout role. Elizabeth Debicki, I think, is really, really great. In this movie, her character's name is Alice, and uh, she's this widowed wife of Florick, is the guy's name. Um, and she has this really interesting relationship, one with Florick, which is only minorly explored in, in some sort of flashback sequences, but also with her mother. She's, you know, someone who has lived an easy life in that, like, she's orchestrated, or her mother and her have orchestrated an easy life for her. She married someone who could provide for her, and when he dies, you know, she has to come to terms with the fact that she's not lived a life of saving, and, you know, she doesn't really have any ability. She was a stay-at-home wife. She was a trophy wife in many senses, and doesn't have an established career to fall back on. And because of that, she has to make some really difficult decisions in the movie about how she's going to, you know, essentially create a future for herself and establish herself and also have to deal with her mother, who is a very imposing helicopter mom kind of figure in this movie. And although I think that there are some parts of this plot arc and almost all the plot arcs that could do with a little bit more development because there's just so many characters in this movie that are being explored. Ultimately, this performance by Elizabeth Debicki is one that really sticks out for me and I really, really liked her. I liked her a lot in uh, the, the Night Manager where she kind of starred in a supporting role uh, opposite Tom Hiddleston and Hugh Laurie, which is a, a miniseries from the BBC that I really loved several years ago, and I'm glad to see her in a in a in a, in a full movie and in in such a prominent supporting role in this film, and she does a great job. And then the other standout performance for me, very initially, I thought this this role was going to be more prevalent and real, more prominent than it was, but Daniel Kaluuya's performance as Jatime Manning, who's just Jamal's brother, and and his his brother's enforcer 
for his crime syndicate, basically. Syndicate's a strong word, but crime, crime, uh, underworld dealings, shady dealings, he's the enforcer for. And he has some haunting, really memorable, outstanding acting sequences in this movie. He's probably only on screen for like 15 to 20 minutes total. Maybe I'm underselling that. Maybe he's on screen for a little bit more. But my goodness, he makes the most of the scenes where he's on. There's one scene in particular, Scott, I know that you want to see this movie, but there's one scene in particular that I'm not going to spoil where what he does in that sequence and and how the whole sequence develops as well as the cinematography of that particular scene. Oh man, it's so good. It's so, so good. And, you know, he's, I don't know if he's going to get a supporting actor nod for this role. I've heard him, he's in the running, he's, he's definitely on the short list, I'd say, for considerations, but maybe because it's, it's less significant than a lot of other roles. That being said, we've seen some very, you know, less significant roles get Oscar nominations and Oscar wins in past years. Yeah. Uh, that, that being said, I, I don't know if this one will get it, but man, he deserves it. It's, it's, such, it's such a good performance. Uh, but you know, outside of the acting, I think the plot is is interesting. It takes uh, it's a thriller. It's Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen is great. I love Twelve Years a Slave. Um, I'm trying to think of the, of the other movies that he's done recently off the top of my head. Um, I think Shame and Hunger is only other two films, so he hasn't done that many. But you know, it's been five years since we've seen him direct something, um, and he and he clearly has been working on this project and, and really sunk a lot of himself into it. He's you know, it's the first time that he's written, directed, and produced a film. Uh, 12 Years a Slave, he was just a just a director and producer. Hunger and Shame, he was just a writer and director. You know, this is a movie where he clearly sunk all of himself into it. It's, and I was kind of watching a, an interview of him about this movie, and he talked about how this movie was a passion project for him. And it's really clear about how much he sunk into this movie in terms of you can see his direction, his touches, his writing in it. And it's not perfect. I think the, I think across all elements of this film, it's not a perfect film. But he really pours his heart and soul into it. In in the plot narrative that you get, you get, and you have a lot of moving parts. I've mentioned this already. You have you know the Mannings crime family. You know you have you know Ver- I haven't really talked about Viola Davis's performance, which is very strong. Uh, you have you know this sort of like all right, I gotta come to terms with who my, who my husband was because it's unclear how much Viola Davis at the beginning knew about what her what Liam Neeson's character her husband was doing uh pre the opening of this film but she has to wrestle with a lot and each one of these individual members uh, uh widows has their own subplot too and Liam Neeson you even you learn more about his character over the course of the film and again haven't even talked about Colin Farrell yet there's a whole sub subplot with Colin Farrell there's just a lot going on it leaves you kind of wanting more I think in a lot of the arcs but they're all still good and they tie up quite nicely there's some twists uh some some serious plot twists in this movie uh, over the course of uh, of its two hours and ten minute runtime, so give or take, and it, it's a lot to digest. And because of how spread thin a lot of the plot is, I don't think I necessarily feel satisfied by every single thing. But that being said, the closing sequence of this movie is so satisfying. The last ten minutes, uh, how everything kind of ties together, wraps up. And then kind of the epilogue moments of this film are, are really, really, really good. And, you know, even if, even if you're like me and you think over the course of the two hours, we'll say, before the end of the movie, you think that it doesn't necessarily um, hit every note that you want it to in terms of keeping everything nice and tight and tidy, uh, the end is really good. 
And ultimately, I think that, you know, between the performances of Viola Davis, Elizabeth Debicki, uh, Daniel Kaluuya, as well as, you know, again, almost everyone is good. I'm just calling out the performances that were great in this movie and then how it ties up at the end, as well as the score of this movie. It's being talked about in terms of Oscar considerations for best original score. I think it's uh, put together by Hans Zimmer, if I'm not mistaken. So you can understand why it's being talked about in the in the best score uh, genre. And I, I think this movie is is a must see for 2018, and I'm giving it a 9.1. Yeah, I really want to see this. Um, hopefully, it'll still be in theaters uh, in a couple of weeks when I, I have some more free time. But yeah, I've been mm-hmm. hearing a lot of good things, um, and especially you know for the performances that you did highlight, especially and especially for Elizabeth Debicki, I think she actually does have the best chance of anybody i think to get nominated from this movie but you know obviously a very stacked cast overall yeah i mean i I guess when you have the weight of steve mcqueen you can convince all these people to come work with you yeah for sure which is great i mean i hope we don't have to wait five years for his next movie is all i'm gonna say all right i mean that's the movies that we've seen you know you got four of them from us and now it's time to shift gears change over to the movie trivia showdown which we've had a lot of action in for the last two weeks since we last recorded scott what do you want to talk about today well so there's been a lot of action both in the ring and outside of the ring but first i guess let's talk about the results from the uh, ultimate showdown singles tournament that we've had so far we have finished the first round now and i think not really any upsets i would say uh we have clark wolf uh, ethan Irwin, dan merle and Mark Andreco all moving on. Seventy-five um, percent for me. I was I was wrong about Ben beating Clark, but alas. Yeah, I, I think I I think I got them all. But I uh, oh, I thought you called Drew. No, I said Android. I, I believe I said Android. We can, uh, we can roll the tape yeah. back if we want. But. Check the tape. Check the tape. No, no good job, Scott. Hundred uh, percent for you in the first round. Thank you. Uh, but I think that there were some good matches in here. I mean, particularly the Clark Wolf Ben Bateman match was great. Came down to the last question. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ben pulled out uh, a very nice answer on his five-point question about the movie Friday, and it it was when sort of all the momentum was with Clark, and I kind of wondered, oh man, is she going to be able to come back from this? But then she got a question about straw dogs for her last question, and it was one of those where, you know, halfway through the question, you could tell from the reaction on her face that she knew it. and overall, played a very good match. I think she ended up with twenty three points. I mean, it's literally um, her best. It's her best performance ever in the in singles. Yeah, and I mean, I you know, I I did choose her to, to go all the way, so it's definitely a strong start for her. But I mean, she's obviously going to have some stiff competition as well. Uh, she's got her faction mate Android next, uh, who had a close match with McQueenie, but uh, was able able to pull it out and. She's also, but on the other side, we have what I think could be one of the matches of the year between mm-hmm. Ethan Irwin and Dan Merle. Uh, so Ethan Irwin, for his first round match, uh, went up against, who did he go up against? Chance Ellison. Of course, yeah. Uh, and Chance actually played a great match. But he did. Ethan- I mean, it, he has so much uh, a potential one. And, and first, like you lose to Ethan Irwin. I mean, every match Ethan Irwin has played, the person that he's beaten has been like, you know, twenty plus, like twenty plus points. Still, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, Chance Ellison. I think he again, he has a good future. He and and we know now that he is going to be playing at the live event, live event to yeah. open season uh, six of the Schmodown. 
um, in New York. He'll be facing off in the undercard match against Janine the Machine. So he uh, he has some more matches coming up, and, and I actually think I, I would take him to win that match against Janine. Um, well, we'll do that on our preview show in January. Yes, of course, of course. We'll get that. Um, but yeah, so and then our, our last match was Dan Merle, who really polished off Stacey Howard with no trouble at all. This was a knockout, I believe. I don't think it made it, it to was. round three. Yeah, it was. Um, a probably, probably not a huge surprise, but it's still good to see Dan, uh, you know, sort of back to his old ways. Um, mm-hmm. And he seems to have shaken off the ring rust now, and I think that him versus Ethan will be a really, really great match. Absolutely, he and Riley both have shaken off their ring rust. And, they certainly have. Yeah, and, and, and to the note about Stacy, before we quickly move on here, uh, yeah. you know, I was, I really appreciated the uh, the commentary after the match around what she's been spinning on the wheel this year because you made a really good point. Like so many, so many competitors this year, I feel like the wheel has been kind to many people this year stacy has not been one of them she's had a really yeah. tough in the second round um and so i've been kind of negative on her throughout the year and again like she got four points in the first round which you know you need to do better at the top level than that and she has been doing better than that in the first round throughout the rest of the year i mean her average was like 6.1 or something before today's match or like, sorry last friday's match when she played yeah. merle um that being said like she's had it rough in the second round and it just proves like you get on a bad streak with the wheel and you're going to have a tough time winning matches, and she's had a tough time winning matches this year. With that being said, and I agree with you, with that being said, I think when you are when you find yourself in a pattern of hitting categories on the wheel that you don't do well in, maybe it means it's time to sort of branch out and mm-hmm. familiarize yourself with some more you know, distinctive yeah. categories and not just hope that you're going to hit your three or four strongest categories. I think that's, that's where Stacey can go from here because I think you know she still is a really strong player and you know has beaten people like Mark Ellis um, yeah. in the past. So I think she could be great. Yeah. But maybe and she's so likable. Yes, absolutely. Even even though she you know she is kind of in a, a heel faction, quote unquote, with with Jay Washington. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think she's someone that I, I root for fairly often mm-hmm. um, in yeah. her matches. I agree. Also, I, that being said, like the director, like how do you study up on the director's category? That's like kind of hard to study up on. Yeah, that that's true. Um, but you know that again, that's that's one of those general movie categories that yeah. should be at least be able to grind out yeah. two or three questions, even if you have to go to multiple choice. Well, get uh, get good, Stacy. That's what we're saying. Yeah, I mean. Not necessarily get good, but get better. Yeah, fair uh, enough. Because because you can. We also had a couple of Patreon matches, which if you're not a patron, then I guess switch it off because we will probably spoil them. <laughs> but we had uh, the movie release dates, Ooh, um, exhibition match, uh, the much hyped movie re- release dates exhibition match uh, between Ben Bateman, Scott Mance, Adam Plavik. And Sam Levine, of course, the wheel slice was on the line. Uh, ben Bateman had sort of reclaimed it from Mance. However, after this Iron Man match, after 30 minutes of movie release dates, Mance has won it back. Um, really, pr- really impressive, honestly, from him in this match. Like, I think, it, I said this to you, it was good to see him win something because it feels like he's been on a tough losing streak recently. Um, I mean, it's also one of those things where, like, if he's going to win a match, it's going to be in an Iron Man because the guy can. <laughs> Christian said it so well. The guy, the guy does not does not play the game well. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he really doesn't, and he has the sort of like energy where 
30 minutes of questions is not really going to wear him down like it might some people. I love um, his reaction to Sam taking a timeout. He's just like, why? Why are you doing out? that? <laughs> yeah. um, it was so but, funny. Yeah, I mean, there was this string in, at, at a point in this match where he like probably got like 15 or 20 questions in a row correct. Like He was just on fire at one point. Um, but at that being said, it actually ended up a fairly close result because of the speed round, which is always the great equalizer. <laughs> I think that Bateman was six or seven points down coming in. <coughs> Sorry. Coming into the speed round and ended up only finishing two points behind because he basically just decided that he was going to buzz in on every single question, which, you know, when you're far behind in the speed round, maybe that's a good strategy. And it almost worked for him because if there had been three or four more questions, he might have been able to catch Mance because Mance wasn't ringing in very quickly. I think he only answered like one or two questions in the speed round. Correct. I'd say Bateman Um, needed like 20. If he had 20 more seconds, I think he could have tied Mance. Maybe so, but at the same time, personally, I would have felt that that wasn't really a fair result, uh, you know, at, because it was only, it's only two minutes of the 30-minute match, and I feel like, yes, obviously speed round is a part of the game, but Mance pretty much dominated the other 28 minutes of the match, so mm-hmm. it definitely felt like the right result in the end. Yeah, there was, a, there was a point in the match where Bateman was hanging in there for a really long period of time, and the, what... what I don't know if it was a fatigue or exhaustion or, you know, he just didn't know the movies that were being asked. But there was a string where he missed about, like, four or five in a row or, or maybe even, like, something like seven or eight out of ten or something like that. And I think that it was one of those moments where he could have used his manager telling him to take a timeout because I think he he just kept getting rattled by not, – not necessarily rattled is not necessarily the right word. But he could have, after missing a couple in a row, I think if he had taken a timeout, composed himself – he might have not been able. He might have not fallen so far behind. Yeah. About like halfway through the match, um, and then when you find, I mean, when you find yourself down by ten in an Ironman match, it is tough to. I mean, I know there's a lot of questions asked, but it's tough to make that ground up. Yeah, because when you have someone who's just not missing, there's really no way to gain that ground back. Yep. Yeah. yeah <laughs> no. But it was so entertaining, though. I mean, we've said this every single time we've talked about uh, a Patreon exclusive match. But these are so these exhibition matches are so good. They're so worth it. So worth it. Yeah. Absolutely. And we also had so shifting gears from the actual matches. We have a lot of kayfabe that's been going on, which I was glad, which I've been glad to see because there was a time when it seemed like we weren't getting a lot of storyline for a while. But we're definitely getting back into to the kayfabe with the spectacular you know, coming up soon on the horizon. And so so we've had this series of scenes, and I, I don't know, for me, I don't know if this is for you, but the timeline has been a little bit confusing uh, of, of these scenes. But yeah, I remember you saying, I remember you saying that you thought that it was a, the, the scene with Brienne getting Emma to sign the contract was a right. flashback, but it's it turns out it's not a flashback. Well, right, so, so, so going back, like flashing all the way back, several weeks ago we had like the first scene of this this sort of series of scenes where Brienne goes into Thad and says that, hey, I have this contract signed by a bunch of people who are saying they're not going to show up at the Spectacular unless you stop being Kalinowski's puppet. And of course, that ended with him telling Kalinowski, no, I'm not going to let you play. I'm not going to let corruption play at the Spectacular. Um, and... I thought, well, that's sort of the end of that. But then we, uh, for a couple matches, we had this series of scenes really with Brienne going around and basically going to different people. Emma was one you mentioned. She also went to Tom. Like Frank Dagnino. That was so funny. 
Yes, Frank Dagnino. Um, to, to sign the contract. So that kind of made me think, oh, well, were these, you know, the signatures that she got before she went into that? But I guess what we're supposed to believe is that there were just other signatures on the contract, not these people, when she went into that. But now she has more signatures because Emma has signed the contract uh, and say said basically there's the Shire Wolves who won't show up for their title match. Uh, and, that, and also... Uh, Tom has signed the contract saying that who's the boss also won't show up for the title match. And in the la- the last uh, most recent match, we see that like what Brienne is now uh, uh, lobbying for is for Tom to actually uh, play in the commissioner bowl, and which is which has also become a thing now where the commissionership is going to be on the line. Um, and uh, we know now that the, the four it's going to be a four way match between. Christian, Bad, Tom, and Emma, um, who, who at the very end of the last episode was asked by Brienne also if she wanted to, to jump in the commissioner ball. So I don't know. It, it's just been a little confusing to me because I'm not sure what, why were Emma, why was Emma signing the contracts? Like, what, what, what was the end game for her? Because, I mean, I don't think she would have wanted Tom to participate in the commissioner ball. So, uh, I don't know. It, it, it's been a little confusing for me. I don't know if you have any insight. Well, I don't think they have any say in the Commissioner Bowl. Like, she like she didn't sign the contract related to the Commissioner Bowl, did she? Well, what did she... But that, that's my question, then. What did she sign it for? Because it seems like the thing with Kalinowski has blown over now that he told Mike no. Like, well, what, I think what, that they don't know that. Because Brianna's gone to them. Like, they don't know that Mike is being, like, curtailed. Oh. So, so, yeah, so, so this kind of supports the theory that maybe Brienne is like, it, Brienne has become something of a puppet master and kind of like playing everyone. Uh, so, so maybe she is sort of manipulating Emma into, you know, signing this contract and getting, so she could get Tom into the commissioner role because, you know, her role is sort of, you know, she, obviously she runs the Patreon and it's like, she's supposed to be the voice of the fans kind of. And that's really what she said to that in that last scene was like, Hey, look! I know Tom and the Commissioner Bowl sounds crazy, but this is what the fans want. So it seems like Brienne's a little bit of a puppet master now, and this maybe in the way that Kalinowski was. Yeah, we'll see. I've, I've I've heard and seen so many theories between you know the oh. the the movie trivia showdown website and also on the Facebook page about like who Brienne is working with with or for or well, any or any or if anyone. And yeah. I mean, we have honestly. Now that I think about it, like. You know, we've had sort of the storyline at the start of the season of Brienne and Mike working together. Obviously, that that cutscene in the spectacular last year, which you know hinted at them sort of joining up and doing something, and there hasn't really been a follow through on that. But who knows? Maybe this is uh, you know an yeah. extension of that storyline. I, I think that's entirely possible because, like I said, they are sort of pulling the strings in the same way. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you read that article on the movie Trivia on a website, but that was one of the article like theories about Brienne working with Mike um to kind of take take or like yeah essentially pull the strings of the league yeah so now with the commissioner bowl we have I think we have five scheduled matches for the spectacular so we have the team title match uh, you know assuming obviously that all this happens which all the all the title matches and the commissioner bowl right so well yes but so there's we have the, the singles title match between Roka and whoever wins the ultimate showdown. We have an interdictive title match between Mike and Mara. <clears throat> we have 
Star Wars title match between Ken and Alex Damon. Uh, we have the team title match between who's the Boston Firewolves. Uh, I guess we technically have six matches, but we also have a, a number one contender singles match. Oh, that's right. Um, I forgot about which that. Which is going to take place between... So what's going to happen is the two semifinalists, the two losing semifinalists in the tournament, in the singles tournament, mm-hmm. are going to play each other. For third and, place. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the winner of that will then play in a number one contender match. But who are they going to play, though? The loser of the final. Right, they're gonna play. They're gonna play the runner-up. That's right. Yeah. Uh, in a number one contender match, and then that person will get the next title shot at the uh, live event. Know, so, at the live event, right against John Roca, uh, or John Roca, or or whoever beats him. Right, of course. Yeah. Um, getting ahead of myself, and then of course the sixth match is the Commissioner Ball. So I would expect that's the full spectacular schedule because last year there were also six matches. Um, it makes sense, like dividing it up into three parts. So I would expect that's going to be the full spectacular schedule. But I want to know. Who you got in this commissioner role? Well, I was going to say, do you want to do predictions now, or do you want to do a full spectacular preview on our next episode? Let's let's do it. Let's just let's just predict it out. And it's got uh, okay. It, it, each like for me when I think about this match, it's like okay, it's going to be Harloff, right? But Ring Rust, we've seen it happen so many times yes. this year. Um, so I mean, that my question said he did just play a match against Ellis not long ago, and that's won. true, Darth Harloff. Um, Finally, Darth Harloff has come back. Yeah, so I, I mean that. That being said, I, can, I don't think you can say you can point to Christian and be like Ring Rust because it's not like anyone else in this tournament plays the game regularly. So I think yeah. I, I think I got to go with Harloff. Um, it's what the fans want, right? I honestly, as much as I love Tom, I can't imagine like what the storylines would. And maybe this is a maybe even a, a vote of confidence for him winning the Commissioner Ball because it'd be just be so crazy to have storyline with him next year as the Commissioner. Um, I don't know. I think I think Christian will win though. It will be it will be it would be hilarious to see Thomas the commissioner, and I think maybe he might do a little more preparation than usual because I, I think this is kind of what he wants is to yeah. be the commissioner. Also, but, I, I actually will be really annoyed if Emma Fife is commissioner. I don't I don't want that. Yeah, I, that seemed a little strange to me that they they kind of just threw her in there. But you know, I, again, I would be interested to see where it goes. Um, Ultimately, though, I am going to go with Harloff. Um, Thad hasn't played in a long time, like in a year, since the since the Ultimate Showdown Teams Tournament last year. Um, and so I think if anyone's going to have ring rest, it's going to be Thad. Um, and I just don't think Tom and Emma have the sort of generalized knowledge that Christian probably has, even though, I, you know, he has been a champion, but I, I don't know that I'd put him up there with, like, the all-time greats. Um but uh, I think when you compare him to these three others, uh, I would take him to win. Yeah, I mean, a big question is like, will he have time to prep? Like, honestly, he's so busy with with running this yeah. running this thing that like, does he have time to put in the practice? Like, that's you know, true. A and Dan I mean, or a John much, would. And how much does he really want the commissionership back? Because there was a point where I think he kind of was just basically saying, "I'm okay with that being the commissioner. Like, I'm enjoying calling the matches, stuff like that." Mm-hmm. Uh, so will he really put the effort into it that it might require to win this match? That's a good question. But, I mean, that being said, it's not its not like Emma, um, Tom, or uh, Thad are, are outstanding players that he would that he would really need to study for of to like, have a legitimate chance of beating. So, I, I mean, yeah. they could all not study at all and probably, you know, on a, on a level playing field, I, I'd imagine Christian would win nine times out of ten. But it's not, a level, it's not always a level playing field. It's the game. So you never know yeah. what's going to happen. 
we will pre- we'll predict the other matches later on once we have a singles Ultimate Schmodown champion, once we know who's going to be in that number one contender match. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we, we'll do that because we, we, we certainly have a few episodes coming up uh, for this year podcast um, on which we'll have some time to discuss the Schmodown. So, yeah. yeah absolutely. All right, yeah. So <laughs> I think to finish up today's episodes, we have some news headlines to go through as always as we wrap up. Uh, episode 24 but first scott the bfi i saw this uh today when i was going through my news feed for um for movie for film B- the bfi the british film institute will no longer fund films with facially scarred slash deformed villains uh this is a push towards essentially uh kind of combating the stigma around or not i mean stigma or kind of connection between facial deformities and scars with being evil and I just wanted to. I, this is not something that I'd ever thought about before. But when I read this and I read the article related to it, it really resonated with me. And I'm really pleased that they're doing things like this because you see it all the time in movies. Like even this year uh, or last year or whenever. I mean, basically, whenever. Um, oh, what was the movie? I'm forgetting already. Um, that doesn't matter. But basically, I feel like you see, it, especially in superhero films, a lot. Like you get these deformed individuals, and that's and they've become villains. Um, and oftentimes linking it back to their deformity and whatnot, and I'm and I'm glad that that the BFI is taking a stance on this. Yeah, no, I mean it, it's one of those things. I'm sitting here thinking about it. Like, it's probably not something where I'm instantly like, oh yeah, there's so many movies. But if I actually sat down and looked at a list of movies where it is, I'd be like, oh yeah, there actually are a lot of movies. Um, and so I think that maybe that speaks to why this is necessary because we've become sort of desensitized to mm-hmm. the fact that that this is you know a thing. So yeah. I'm all for, you know, that sort of idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we, we've seen some movies like it just makes me think of, of Wreck-It Ralph, um, for example, a movie which uh, sort of empowered people with, you know, deformity, so to speak, uh, with, with, you know, we have, of course, we have Vanellope who has like the glitch, which, you know, obviously it is, is sort of a more cartoony animated thing, but I think is sort of a, more of a proxy for like a physical deformity and so yeah i absolutely uh, agree that this is an interesting and an important thing for the bfi to be doing yeah no it's it's good I, oh, the movie that instantly came to my mind was um uh, skyfall the bond film oh, where sure, yeah. yeah javier bardem's character yeah. although like it's not his i forget because uh, i haven't seen the film in a little bit but it isn't immediately noticeable that he has a scar, but like his face is, he, he, he is deformed and yeah. it's a prominent part of his character in the, in the movie. Right. Anyway. Yeah. So moving on, uh, in less, um, uh, op, uh, you know, uplifting news, Luke Basson, who's already been accused of, uh, several allegations of sexual offenses of varying natures, including harassment and, and other, and other, uh, unsavory things as actually five more women have come forward. Uh, bringing the total to nine, and I don't know if we need to comment too much on this story, but thought it worth noting as you know the Me Too movement continues to um, uh, uproot people who have been toxic for the the women in, in the film industry. Yeah, I don't have much much more to add. It's just an unfortunate situation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> to say the least. I yeah. Hopefully, the ho- I mean, hopefully this movement will you know kick everyone out of this industry that perpetuates this, and you know teaches people that silently going along with it is not is no longer a norm uh and, and again just another step on that path yeah all right so in in, in a kind of a string of of netflix news uh netflix has recently acquired the rights to several real doll 
stories, including Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and they're going to be making adaptations of these. I'm not sure if they're going to be in some sort of anthology form or if they're going to be full movies or what it's going to be, but what, what do you get about this announcement? I mean, I really have no feelings whatsoever. I never really read any Roald Dahl stories as a kid. I mean, obviously I've seen Willy Wonka, but not super connected to any of these stories or characters. But Not the hey, BFG? I mean, no, no, I can't, can't say so. But Netflix does great work, so maybe if something comes out is getting good buzz, I won't hesitate to give it a try. Well, there you go. I mean, who knows? They just acquired the rights to it, so it'll probably take a little while for them to get that yeah. off the ground. But uh, absolutely. And in our other piece of Netflix news, kind of on the opposite end of, of acquiring rights to something, they, they have uh, knocked off one of their rights, and that is Daredevil. So you know, Marvel's Daredevil run for three seasons on Netflix officially got the boot the, the the over these past two weeks and it's been canceled yeah we were talking about this beforehand i think for me this signals that they're taking it to the disney streaming service because even though netflix doesn't release its ratings and stuff for their tv shows like my my general uh takeaway just from word of mouth from twitter from stuff like that is that daredevil was pretty popular and definitely the most popular of the marvel shows mm-hmm. on netflix mm-hmm. so i'd be very surprised if this is the last that we see of it and obviously with the Disney streaming service coming out later later uh, in 2019, um, I think it's a natural platform for us to see Daredevil being rebooted. I mean, obviously, we, we, we've already heard about that they're going to be doing a Star Wars series, The Mandalorian. Um, so this seems like a, a natural direction to go in with one of their other massive properties, which is Marvel, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, when you see announcements like this and you put it in the context that you've put it in, it, it makes a lot of business sense for Disney uh, and uh, obviously by extension Marvel. And I think that to build out their, it's going to be really important for them to launch this service with a lot of good content, which of course they have. Like they're going to have all the Marvel movies. They're going to have all the Star Wars movies. They're going to have really great content on this. But to also be able to de- deliver content that's, you know, like Netflix has been able to do over the last three or four years that is really meaningful and original. That's yeah. something that's going to be really important for getting users onto their platform beyond just people who you know re- have relied on Netflix in the past to be able to watch Marvel movies and you don't own them, you know, physical copies. Yeah. Yep. All right. Um, kind of. In, uh, again, yeah. This is we're great segues in this news section. So in other Disney news, <laughs> um, the Lion King live action trailer came out recently, Scott, and I don't know if this trailer took you by storm like it took the internet but this is the most this came the fastest like most viewed movie trailer on youtube of like all time i think it's like crazy how many views it got so quickly yeah and it's it's funny too it's crazy too because it's actually a shot by shot as many people have pointed out it's a shot by shot uh remake of like the trailer for the original lion king um and people are talking about how it's like, oh, this is, you know, this trailer is amazing. Well, it's really just the same trailer. But, of course, we have the different context this time of uh, it being a live action movie. And I think that, you know, it, it, it looks promising to me. Um, it has a great cast. Obviously, it has a lot to live up to. I mean, I, I would put The Lion King as one of the top animated movies of all time. But, I mean, I, I will definitely be in line to see this one uh, opening weekend. Yeah, absolutely, and it's uh, uh, summer next year. I believe it's in July, so you don't have to wait too long. Yeah. Sweet. All right, last note, uh, kind of fitting to end on as we approach award season, the National Board of Review, which I think you actually already mentioned this earlier in the episode, that recently announced their uh, their awards for 2018. Scott, do you want to talk about those at all? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned earlier, we had Green Book winning 
uh, for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had Best Actor, I believe, went to Viggo Mortensen. Indeed. Um, yep. And Best Actress went to... Lady Gaga Miami. for A Star is Born. Yes, of course, of course. Yeah. No, um, the, the big winners, the big takeaways, right, are Green Book, which won, as you pointed out, Best Picture and Best Actor. And then the other big winner, A Star is Born, uh, Best Director for Bradley Cooper, Best Actress for Lady Gaga, and Best Supporting Actor for Sam Elliott. Yeah, yeah, which kind of surprises me. Like, I enjoyed Sam Elliott's performance, but I think there are definitely stronger supporting performances this year. I mean, Mahershala Ali, just to name one. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. So, I ultimately, I, I hope we don't see the this trend of him winning continue, because I think there are probably some more uh, deserving performances. Um, but, yeah, I... I was I was interested to see like if there were more technical categories, but they didn't really have uh, any technical mm-hmm. categories at the uh, no, they the National Board of Review, so that not really a good uh, indicator of what's to come at the Oscars there. But I think they had some other categories like best yep. breakthrough performance. They did, and Thomasine McKenzie won it for Leave No Trace. Right, Leave No Trace, and best directorial debut went to uh, what I imagine would be your pick as well, Bo Burnham for Eighth Grade. Yeah, hard to argue with that, although I, I imagine there were some other good ones in there. Was Hereditary also in there? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I don't have the full list of nominees in front yeah. of me. I only have the winners. Uh, of course, glad to see 8th grade win. Uh, it will definitely be very high on my list, not to spoil anything. Yeah, please don't. Uh, we got to give re- people a reason to watch our year-end episode, our year-end course, special, which, which we can announce now. I think that uh, our year-end special, not our year-end awards, but our, our year-end kind of... Uh, top 10 list top episode 10 of the year yeah, yeah top 10 episode that we're going to be doing as sort of a bonus special episode um towards the end of december as the year you know wraps up concludes uh we'll be doing that with uh with some special guests scott you want to talk about those yeah so we, this will be the first time we we've had uh some other guests on the show but i you know i thought this would be a good opportunity since if you if you do listen to the show often you probably know generally what our preferences are and you know, maybe not. Don't know exactly where each movie is gonna shake out on our list, but mm-hmm. probably have a good idea of what movies are gonna are gonna come up. So I wanted to get some differing perspectives as well. Um, so I've invited the co-host of the podcast Purely Nostalgia, which I've I've plugged here before. Um, great podcast about uh, old kids movie movies, basically that were popular when we were kids. They just uh, finished a series on the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, which I definitely recommend going and, and listening to those episodes. They, they have some good perspectives. Um, and they, they generally liked, uh, liked the movies, which, I mean, I, I feel which the is, same way. Which is generally them. right. They're very good movies. <laughs> exactly. Especially the second one. Um, but yeah, so, so Clint Page, Eli Smith, they will be uh, joining us for that final episode. They'll either be, be giving their own individual top ten list or they'll have a joint top ten list. But we'll be getting uh, their, their picks for the best movies of the year as well, and, and hopefully get you know a, a good range of uh, of diversity and choices uh, with the best movies of the year. But I'm looking forward to it. Oh, me too, Scott. I absolutely can't wait to record the episode because we're all going to be in the same room. Yeah, it's first time ever. It's going to be crazy. My voice is going to sound so much clearer, probably. Yeah, it's not going to be the scratchy phone recording, but I will say I still think our audio quality is good except for those two episodes. <laughs> oh, yes, prime, yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, like I said already, can't wait for that episode, but I also can't wait till next time. And that will just about do it for episode 24 of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today <laughs> other than to go see the two movies that we talked Or Yeah, I mean, well, I would say go see three of the four movies we talked about today, but the two movies that you saw that you talked about definitely should go see. Yeah, shout out to my alma mater, Furman. Um, they... Are eight and zero in college basketball. If you've been following, um, 
They upset Villanova at Villanova. They also upset Loyola Chicago. Um, I guess you could call it an upset. I mean, Loyola did make the Final Four last year. However, when I've watched them this season, they're they're pretty bad. Like I think I, I think it was a fluke. Um, I, th- I think I, maybe it's too early to say that, but uh, but still a great win for Furman, and they've been getting some national recognition as well. Uh, their shooting guard uh, Jordan Lyons, he uh, he had 54 points in a game recently, made 15 threes, which is the NCAA record. Um, so uh, great to see my small school getting some uh, some recognition in the national limelight. And yesterday they went they moved to eight zero. Um, with a double OT victory against Western Carolina, it, it was a sold-out crowd at Tim's Arena, and they broke the record for the most students ever at a Furman basketball game. So I, I love seeing stuff like that because going to basketball games at uh, at Furman was one of my favorite things to do when I was at Furman. And we always had good teams. They've just never been able to quite get over that hump and make it into the tournament by winning the, the, the SoCon tournament, which, of course, you know, is the only way for a, for a mid-major like Furman to really make it into to the big dance. But who knows, maybe this year is the year. But regardless, they, they've done awesome so far. Uh, so, so shout out to the Dens. Absolutely. All right, where can people find you on Twitter, Scott? <laughs> at Scarby Dent. Awesome. And I can be found at at SShelton2013 over on Twitter. But more importantly, you can find our podcast on Twitter as well. And we'd love it if you followed us over there at at MediaPlug pods we'd love it even more however if you checked out our podcast patreon page there are a bunch of different reward tiers over there depending on how much you're willing to pledge to the podcast we'd appreciate it so much even if you only donated at the one dollar level but you should go over to www.patreon.com slash media plug pods to check it out for yourself and, and pick the tier that's right for you if you choose not to support us over on patreon we totally understand it's totally fine and you can still find us on apple podcasts where we'd also appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us as well as subscribed and shared so that we can continue to reach a broader audience all right scott i've said enough we really appreciate all of you listeners for taking time out of your day to you know (laughs) listen to us chat about movies which we love doing and we love that you (laughs) listen to us we'll be back in a couple weeks with two more movies to discuss it's getting to be the very very busy holiday season over here um we're next time we're gonna be talking about the favorite which is another another oscar major oscar contender as well as spider-man into the spider-verse we hope you'll join us again then but until next time have a wonderful day for scott harvey i'm scott shelton bye everybody thanks for listening